so I don't know if you noticed, <laughs> but if you've been following my increasingly erratic tweets, I've been delving into the minds of the the creators of the Together Trial, and sort of starting to trying to sort of understand what is going on with it. <laughs> I guess what what the hell happened. I think I'm starting to formulate a, a clean idea of, of of the events, but I think what has not been done is to get a bunch of folks that have dug into the material to sort of talk through the something like the long list of issues that is presented at ideameta.com to sort of get a sense of what everybody thinks, right? Like, so I, I always remember this idea of like, if only we knew what we knew. You know, maybe I read something on Adia Meta and I, I disagree with it, or, or or maybe I have more to say about it, and maybe somebody else has another thing to say. And there's two fragments of ideas that they both kind of seem like dead ends to each of us. But if we put them together, maybe there's another idea that starts. So I, I kind of just wanted to at least say my thoughts out loud, see if anybody else has anything to add to them as I try to sort of build an understanding. I think at, by this point I'm getting fairly solid understanding of of, of the depth and breadth of the trial at least in the you know from from january to, to july of 2021 not the later trials of you know did they try afterwards interferon lambda and, and that stuff i i haven't dug into that but um yeah i just wanted to use this space to just kind of think out loud a little bit give an opportunity to folks that might have an idea about uh, more, more, more you know more material about this to to sort of add to the uh, to the pile so we can maybe connect some clues that we might not have done before so so basically what i'm going to do is literally just go to avia meta at the top they have this together trial analysis i'll add it as a link Yep. Okay. So you should be seeing now at the top of the space a link that I will be talking through. So uh, I've invited a number of people to talk. So I'll just kind of try to walk through some of these issues and sort of just share my thoughts about the particulars. So you know, up up top at the page, there's this this, this statement by Mills in an email to Steve Kirsch and, and others, which says there is a clear signal that IVM works in COVID patients. That will be significant if more patients were added. It says if you hear my conversation in some other recorded video, you will hear me retract previous statements where I had been previously negative. And then in that video that the, he's referring to is that the question of whether this study was stopped too early in light of the political ramifications of needing to demonstrate that the efficacy is really impressive really could be raised, this guy called Frank Harrell said in that video. And I totally agree with Frank Ed Mills' uh, response. Ed Mills, by the way, is kind of the, the, the let's call him the, the, the mastermind. I don't think he would even disagree with that. Behind the Together trial, he's, he's written a lot of the original papers and is kind of in every paper and in doing all the communication on behalf of it. He's kind of the, the guy. Before even we jump in, this thing about whether the trial was stopped too early really bugs me because there was lack of clarity about how big the trial was supposed to be. They mentioned 800 patients in some places per arm or 681 in other places. Having dug in deep enough, I'm convinced that they were intending to make it 681 for all the arms, including fluvoxamine and ivermectin that were running in parallel. But here's the, here's the punchline. For fluvoxamine, they actually went all the way up to 741 patients. There's no explanation why their data monitoring group didn't stop at 681, as they had said they would. But with ivermectin, they stopped exactly on the limit, actually slightly short, 679 patients, right? So 
while I don't object that they stopped the trial where they said they would, it is kind of weird that they did not stop the fluoxamine trial where they said they would. And 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 why this matters, right? Like because you might say like, hey, a few more patients, what's what's the problem? If you get to constantly look at the data over and over again as it's coming in, you get to pick a point to stop that looks better for you, right? Every new data point might help or not help. This is why when you're doing A-B testing on your website, they tell you very clearly, do not stop your trial the moment it looks positive for your for one or the other. You have to know, like, you, you have to kind of have set the, the, the size to, to pre-commit, basically, to the size so that you don't fall victim to that. Now, there is this thing called interim analyses, which are like, it's kind of a compromise, right? Because they're saying, that, look, we may have to wait the whole way, but maybe if we check halfway through, that's okay, because if it's going completely sideways, right, there's no reason to continue. And that's fine. However, I even found this analysis that says that the more interim points you add, the more chances of a false positive you get. And and I guess the false negative follows from that same analysis. I think they said in that paper that with four interim analyses, you get about 10% chance of a false positive, right? Like it's it's kind of significant. But they, they did their interim analyses and, and, and they reached the, the completion point. But with fulfoxamine, they didn't even stop there. They continued to an arbitrary point in the future. Now, how do we know that that point was important or not? We don't know. But for ivermectin, somehow it got cut sharply at 681. In fact, just for spite, <laughs> 679, not even 681. So that's kind of weird when he says now, like, oh, well, you know, maybe we should have continued it. It's like, well, for fluvoxamine, you did. Uh, it doesn't, there's no, this doesn't, this isn't like a, a, a hypothetical. Like they, they did do this in one of the two kind of twin trials that were running mostly in parallel. So this, this requires explanation. Anyway, so scrolling down. There's kind of a summary here that the paper was updated on April 5 with no uh, indication or explanation. That's true. It, it goes too deep for me to, to, to know if something nefarious happened there, but I just the basic rational sort of analysis says that they should have declared that they made a, a correction to the article, right? If, if you've seen this, like when, when they make somebody make a correction, especially on the pro side, they, 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 they plaster this everywhere, right? Like the, the news <laughs> starts. But here it was like, ah, whatever, it was just a typo, right? We're just going to change it without even mentioning. And they also mentioned that the authors have not responded to the data request. I don't know which request they're referring to, but I'm sure there's several people who have filed requests and, and some of them probably quite well credentialed to get the data. But of course, what Mills said to Kirsch in the same email above is that they will make it available through ICODA. ICODA sounds, it's some kind of globally coordinated health data-led research response to tackle the pandemic. International COVID-19 Data Alliance, that's it. The problem with ICODA, it's funded by the same people that, that are funding this trial and are, you know, are employing mills and are, well, they didn't fund this particular arm, but they funded the setup of the trial, to be precise, and are funding mills and, and, and some of the pharmaceutical adjacent companies that have members of them in the trial are also members of this organization. Like, uh, let me find these two. Sertara and Cytel are, are two members of partners of ICODA, right? So, so ICODA is not like some, you know, kind of a completely independent organization. It, it has Bill Gates' fingerprint all over it, as does, you know, Mills and Cytel and Sertara. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's highly conflicted. So it's not, you know, again, ICODA is being put a fraud as a, some kind of a, neutral third party that can make decisions. For one, in the fluvoxamine paper, it says clearly that they will give it to ICODA, but ICODA will ask Mills and Race 
the other author from from Brazil, the, the other co-principal from Brazil, whether whether the, the the data should be released. And secondly, it's not an independent party. So uh, this whole ICODA business feels very much like a indirection because you know in their original registration they said clearly we will give you know anonymized patient data upon request upon completion of the protocol the co- the protocol is completed in august so that's when we should have had this data now it's 7 months later and we're talking about whether at some point in the future because apparently they're quite busy right now they might give the data to some party that is not really independent and then we will be able to apply for a <laughs> for 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 access to that data but of course the, the, that application will go back to to mills and race uh you know, I think this is a little bit of a joke. Anyway, let's get to the issues. Actually, let me check the space to see if anybody's was going on. Oh, we got Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Approve. Cool. So again, I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling down the Idea Meta uh, Together analysis, which I've linked to the top of the space. You can click there to to see it. So I've I've kind of gone through the the preamble. I don't know how long this space is going to go for, but I, I've determined to just get everything out of my head as much as I can. So yeah, the, the the first kind of criticism is delayed for more than six months, which you've mentioned. I also wrote a piece a few months ago about this delay. There's no real explanation. And even if they they said, oh, the journal didn't want to publish it. For Fluvoxamine, they published a preprint on August 23rd. They presented on August 11th their preliminary results for both Evermectin and Fluvoxamine. By the 23rd, that's 12 days. That's not even two weeks. They had a preprint up, right? Like they could have put a preprint up for, for ivermectin, and then negotiated with the journal as much as they wanted. They didn't do that, so uh, you know this definitely cause for concern. No response to the data request, as we talked about. Okay, uh, the three different death counts. Now, this one is one where I get baffled, and honestly, I don't see much depth in this criticism. Like there are different death counts, right? This is a this is an error in the papers. This is the kind of error that you know Carvalho's paper got lambasted over that he didn't know what he was doing because he got his sums wrong in different tables. Well, these guys did this in a few places. But beyond the sort of like being sort of pleased with you know, <laughs> the schadenfreude, that's the word, beyond the schadenfreude, I, I don't fully understand what the implications of this are. Maybe it'll come in handy later, but I'm not 100% sure what to make of it, right? It's true that they present the death as 21 or 20 under ivermectin and, and, and 25 or 26 under the placebo and 24, sorry, 24 or 25 with the placebo. And it depends how you count them, whether it's all, all cause or whatever. And it definitely seems like Mills has been inconsistent in, in how he describes it. There's definitely some messiness going on there. The reason I'm not diving into this too much is that, and maybe this is worth actually a quick summary of, of, of how I approach this. If you see the list that Aviameta has, right, this is like we're looking at what, 40 issues, like some number. In the first phase, I think it was extremely important to start gathering up issues because they're clues. They're, 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 they're telling you that something's gone wrong, but what goes wrong depends on what you, you, you find in these, what needles you find in this haystack. Right now, where my mind is at, I've actually got a narrative for what probably went wrong. I've got a, a story that connects, I don't know, 80% of these together in a way that, that makes it make sense. Because like, if you if you see 30 problems with a trial, 40 problems, whatever number there is. By the way, I've, I've debated with myself putting up, I, I've, I've got more problems than what is here. At this point, I've, I've stopped looking because there's so many. I've debated with myself whether I should just be posting a, a problem per day until they release the stupid data because there's just so, so many, right? But but the, the number of errors in a way can also act in reverse, right? People who are sort of supportive of the trial will say like, you guys are just throwing whatever you got at the wall. This is the gish gallop, whatever. Okay, but the point 
here is not to say, okay, look how many, you know, you don't put the, the, the claimed errors on a scale and say like, you know, we've got 60 pounds of errors, therefore you're retracted. I mean, it could be, especially if a lot of these are validated, sure. But the way I think about it is, is not, it's not this. The way I think about it is where did this come from? Where is their source, right? Are they 60 independent, 40, 30, whatever number, independent errors? That's weird. That's even weirder than, than having a unified source, right? It's having one kind of thing that went wrong and caused all of these ripples. So what I'm looking for is this unifying explanation for all these things. So so the death counts, I haven't been able to make it slot in in a, in a particularly meaningful way to the hypothesis I'm working with. So I haven't dug into this one. But there's definitely something here. It should have been noted when they updated it. And uh, I can't say a lot more than that here. It's, it's, it's just unfortunate that they seem to be quite flippant with how they are presenting the data, but also are happy to just make changes uh, willy-nilly. Okay, yeah, let's move on to the next one. So the trial was not blind. This is an interesting accusation because, of course, you know, uh, a double-blinded uh, randomized controlled trial, I mean, these are the things you've got, right? You've got blind, randomized, and controlled. <laughs> you, you, if, you, if you start eating away at those, you, you've got a real issue with the trial. So this one says... Uh, Evermectin placebo blinding was done by assigning a letter to each group that was only known to the pharmacist. If a patient receives a three-dose treatment, investigators immediately know that the patient is more likely to be into the treatment group than the control group. Yes. So, 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 so here's here's what this means. Just to explain it. Let's forget everything else about the various allocations. The baseline allocation for most of the trial was that they had three medicines they were testing. There was fluvoxamine, metformin, which was stopped at one point, and and ivermectin, and then there was a placebo arm. And the algorithm was allocating between these arms. However, within the placebo arm, because these these other treatments have different durations, metformin was actually also ten day as was fluvoxamine, uh, 10 day morning and night, actually, like, so 20 pills to take, basically. Uh, whereas the ivermectin was, a, was at least when, after it got restarted, was a three-dose trial. So what do you do in this case, right? How do you cover this divide? Well, when the trial started, if you look at the original protocol dated December 17th, what they were going to do is give everybody 20 pills, right? 10 days, morning and night, you get 20 pills. If, if you were on ivermectin, the, the three morning pills, right? morning one, morning two, morning three, were going to be Evermectin, and you were going to get 17 placebos anyway. If you were on the others and you were on the treatment arm, you would get 20 real uh, pills. I'm not sure if metformin was, was in fact 20 pills or there was some filling in the placebo, but you, you, get, you get the point. However, when they restarted on high-dose Evermectin, they actually changed how they approached that, and they said, we're going to create placebo that is three-day and 10-day. So some of the placebo patients are going to be getting three days of placebo, some of the placebo patients are going to be taking 10 days of placebo. And, you know, one of the arms is going to be taking three days of treatment. And another one of the arms is going to be taking 10 days of treatment twice a day for the fluvoxamine. And uh, again, whatever it is that they did for, for metformin, I haven't dug into that one uh, as much. Now, here's the problem with that, right? So let's say you've got 200 patients and you are allocating them across four arms. So you got 50 on ivermectin, 50 high-dose ivermectin, right? This is We're talking about the phase after March 23rd when they were allocating to the high-dose ivermectin arm. So let's say you put 50 on high-dose ivermectin, 50 on fluvoxamine, 50 on metformin, and 50 on placebo. And within the placebo, you split them, right? You either do half-half, three-day and 10-day, or maybe you do two-thirds 10-day because metformin and fluvoxamine are both 10-day, uh, and one-third. Let's say you do it half. So then you've got 25 patients within the 
50 placebo that are getting three day placebo and 25 that are getting 10 day placebo to match sort of the, the metformin and fluvoxamine regimens. Now, the problem with that is that if you gave a letter to the three dose placebo patients, the three dose treatment, whatever treatment, whether it was placebo or ivermectin, that you had the three dose group and that group had a letter. Now, if I see what patient has that letter, let's say, I don't know, B, on their grouping, that was, you know, supposed to be blind, right? You don't know what that is. But in fact, I do have information. I do know that there are 25 placebo patients and 50 treatment patients, which means that patient, two-thirds chance this person is an ivermectin treatment patient, right? So it's not, you know, completely blinded. This is already violating the, the, the blinding of the, of the trial because while I'm not completely sure if a specific patient I'm looking at is taking ivermectin, I am 66% sure. And if I want to sabotage them, I could totally do that. I, I don't think that happened with the data I saw from the protocol analysis. But that doesn't, you know, in a way, what I think shouldn't matter, right? The point is, where did they blind appropriately or not? And it does seem that there was this feature of the of the revised protocol on March 23rd. I think if you go on the page togethertrial.com slash protocols, this would be version 2.0, which funnily has a parenthesis next to it, which is, says first version. So it's kind of confusing. But um, that one, it talks about these split, split placebo group. Anyway, so so I do agree that the, the, the trial was not blind, or at least its blinding was compromised, right? And he said that, note that we only know about this blinding failure because the journal required the authors to restrict to the three-day placebo group. Also note that this may apply to all arms of the TOGETHER trial and that it would have been trivial to avoid if desired. This is a very important point. Some of the delay has been attributed by Mills to the journal. And what this means academically is that there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of corrections and a lot of insistence and, and, and quite a bit of unhappiness, I suppose, on the, on the part of the journal uh, about what they were looking at. So they forced them to make a number of, of, of changes to their, to their manuscript. One of the changes that Mills uh, attributes to the journal in, in his email, I believe, to Kirsch, or maybe he did this in the, in the, in the talk he gave afterwards, was this allocation of the three-day placebo because the, the, the per-protocol placebo was not described the same way for fluvoxamine. For fluvoxamine, they, they just said, you know, any placebo patients that followed the protocol, that includes three-day placebo. Whereas for ivermectin, they said only three-day placebo patients. Hmm. But Mill says the journal made them do this. The problem with that is that this revealed this feature of the trial. Like until then, for the metformin papers and for the fluvoxamine paper, we didn't know that that was happening. Now, truth be told, it's in the protocol, right? If you read in detail, you'll see it. But the problem with this trial is that if you gather all the materials that you know I've gone through and some others have gone through to understand what's going on, we're talking about like 20 thick documents, like, like thousands of pages, right? Like they could have made this a lot cleaner than they did. Uh, is Long story short. Alex, when you say yeah. trivial to avoid, I don't know if you're, my interpretation was just like, they didn't have to structure the placebo that way in the first place. Like if they had just Correct. used the original protocol. Correct. Um, it's very unclear why they didn't do that. One interesting thing about this in the in the review on the Gates Open Science, I believe, uh, Gates Open Research portal, there's this open peer review, which Mills responded to. So that was kind of an interesting document to look into. One of the people who was very critical of their, you know, not having their, their, their committee independent actually praised them for, for doing this, right? But praised them in an interesting way. So this is a very innovative approach to the problem. Actually, I'm not sure if it was the same reviewer. Maybe it was the other one. But, you know, this actually says something like that. This is special. This is not a normal feature of these kinds of trials. Even among adaptive trials, this is not normal. 
but maybe there is some talk in the background, like we could find research that would sort of present this as an improvement on the placebo procedure. However, that doesn't mean that the reviewer understood fully what was happening, right? And that's a good idea. All we know is that this is a feature of the trial that is novel. And, you know, naively, it sounds to us like it affected the blinding. If, if not, it should be explained somehow, somewhere why that was not the case. Well, and you also lose, like, it doesn't make sense because the whole point is to share placebo patients across all the arms and if you start giving them different doses now you can't share them so you've reduced like it just nothing about it makes sense to me why they, you they do share it they do share them the patients only in the per protocol analysis you don't and only in the ivermectin paper this is done and i think at the insistence of the journal so they, they their plan was not yeah. to do it this way yeah but i i don't know it's not clear why they wouldn't just give everybody the 10 pills and then divide it out like oh well only one of those is an active pill like it just yep. Then it's more even for everybody, and, and nobody loses. There's yeah. there's nothing wrong with that plan. So no, and, and this is actually one of the reasons I'm curious to see the early data. Right, one of the things that didn't happen, I guess they'll say it later, is that they they didn't release the. And, and I realize you need kind of a visual map of the of the trial to understand what I'm talking about. But they had the low dose ivermectin arm in the beginning, from I believe the January 20th to somewhere around March 4th. They don't tell us when they stopped exactly. They had the uh, that arm going, and that was with the full sort of twenty dose placebo, and and even the ivermectin arm was twenty doses, et cetera, et cetera. Even though the three were active, that data is not released. Like they have that data somewhere, they have not uh, released it, and they have not even told us, which is another interesting feature here, why they did this. <laughs> like they haven't told us basically what was the decision maybe from the data and safety monitoring committee about resetting the dose? Like when was that taken? Because they seem to have a protocol like three weeks in with only 19 patients recruited. They had a protocol ready to go to revise the trial. Did the committee come together at like five patients and say, we don't like this? If they could do it at five, why didn't they do it at the beginning? It's it's really strange that that reset happened. They stopped that and they haven't given us that data, which I think would elucidate a ton. Anyway, so the next one is patient counts did not match previously released enrollment graphs. So if you've seen my on my Substack, do your own research at substack.com. I've got my first piece on, on Together, which is kind of like just getting some ideas out there. And I've shown how we did the reverse engineering of the of the released graph. So they released this, this, this I don't know what to call it, like the stack chart of enrollments, which was kind of really beautiful, but they didn't release the data with it. But it turns out it's quite easy to reverse engineer. So, I mean, easy in terms of, it's not simple to do, but it's it's not it's not very complicated to do. You just apply a grid and you can, you can count. And what we saw there is that the numbers they claim they had only match if they have taken placebo patients from the interim between the low-dose and high-dose ivermectin arms. So basically what happened is they, they had the low-dose ivermectin trial, which went on for, I believe, something like six weeks. Then they paused for two weeks, and then they started again on the high-dose, right? In the meantime, the placebo arm was ongoing, the fluvoxamine arm was ongoing, and the metformin arm was ongoing. So only on the ivermectin side did you have this gap. And what I've seen of the numbers, everything I add together says the same story, that the patients from those two weeks of placebo after the low-dose IVM arm was stopped were used as placebo for the high-dose ivermectin trial. So they were offset by two weeks, actually a little bit more than two weeks. They were offset into this trial. Now, uh, why is this a problem, right? Like just placebo patients, you know, surely it gets messier, but we'll talk about it later when you start to realize that the, 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 the gamma variant was like those weeks before and after like right before the high-dose ivermectin arm started and right after, were literally the worst days of the pandemic for Brazil. They were not just kind of any day. 
they were the absolute worst. They had a number of deaths that was like twice daily than any other peak that they had. I'm getting images of like, you know, Italy early on the pandemic, like just absolute chaos, right? So it's it's conspicuous that that weird sort of dislocation of patients is happening exactly as that wave is first building and then sort of cresting on Brazil and specifically in, in, in ministries that, 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 that uh, uh, state. And for anybody who is uh, from Brazil, I, I apologize and please don't kill me for <laughs> butchering that pronunciation. I'm doing my best. Okay, so funding conflict. So I want to say a little bit about the funding. What they're saying here is very narrow. They're saying that the original protocol said that the trial was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, whereas the later protocols do not mention this. What I understand happened is Bill and Melinda Gates funded the the framework, the setup of the trial, right? If they had an office, if they had like some, you know, some materials to buy computers, whatever they needed, and, you know, to make submissions, buy domain names, whatever it is that you need, like the... The, sort of the, the infrastructure was funded by the, the Gates Foundation, but the Gates Foundation did not fund this particular trial. Now, they put that in there. Maybe they thought that the Gates Foundation would fund it, they, and they backed out, whatever it is. In later protocols and every paper since then, it's very consistent that the funding has come from the Rainwater Foundation and the Fast Grants Foundation. And, you know, of all I know of these people that funded those trials, they're good people. Like, I, I know it sounds weird, at least for Fast Grants that uh, have direct knowledge, and some knowledge I very vague I have of the rainwater people, they seem like they're coming from 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 a good place. But you know, again, this later we'll get into the conflict of interest stuff, and I'll mention why I don't make a big fuss about that. But um, here, this funding conflict element that they're mentioning is just this: that they initially said that it was funded by its foundation, and then they disappeared, and this has not been explained. And and I think like a lot of these things. Some of these are understandable. Like you could sort of imagine what happened, right? Like they kind of had some early conversations and said, yeah, 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 sure, we'll fund it. And then they went back and they're like, no, I don't think we can do it or whatever, right? And you could see these artifacts show up. But a little bit of explanation would go a long way. Like this is something they could have said. Like, look, yeah, this is, you know, now we're just stuck kind of saying like, are they hiding something or like whatever? Because again, we're being forced to look through 20 different documents. There isn't like one write-up that just makes everything plain. That's with the funding conflict. Now, the DSMC not independent, that's where things start getting really hairy. I've, I've written about this. I think I was maybe, was I the person who first picked this up? I'm not 100% sure, but I definitely was among the folks that raised it. And I, and I did more work on this one, so I, I, know, I know a lot to say. So the issue with this is that this guy, Christian Thorland, is the, is the chairman of the Data and Safety Monitoring Committee. Now, this is fine. Right, it's a professor. Whatever you have a committee. Keep in mind that the chairman both controls how the meetings flow and has a special tiebreaker vote. Usually, I know this from board meetings. Right, I don't know if this particular committee has that particular structure, but that's usually what a chairman is, and why that 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 position is kind of special. Now, the problem with this is that Thorland is not just Mills' friend or Mills' like acquaintance or Mills' coworker at both Cytel and McMaster University. All these things are true, probably, but it's just the beginning of the issues. The problem is that Thorland and Mills co-founded this company called Amtech Sciences, which was the email address to which the Together trial was going. If you go to the togethertrial.com and, and the Internet Archive and go back to the first version, the place they send you to ask for inquiries is info at amtechsciences.com, I believe. And if you look at the FAQ, it says that the co-principal investigators are Mills and Thorland. 
So Thurlund is not like some independent third-party person who is just kind of like waiting in or like they brought him in to, to provide some you know independent guidance. He is deeply, deeply involved with the design of this trial. And in fact, if you go further back in their shared literature, Mills and Thurlund, by the way, had written over 100 papers together. I believe it was 101 to be precise, but like just an absurd number of papers that they're cited together. They, they have a very deep and long collaboration. Some of those papers are about this kind of adaptive trials. And, and, and during MTech, one of their papers is, is, is about high-efficiency clinical trials, HECT. And they also maintain another person, I believe the name is Jonas Hagstrom, who works at MTech. And he's also at this supposedly independent, supposedly unconnected data and safety monitoring committee, right? So you've, got, you've now got two people in this committee of, I believe, five who are deeply connected to Mills and to Cytel and to MTech. <laughs> and Hagstrom was working, before he was working at Amtech, was working at, you guessed it, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This isn't what you do if you want a, a committee here that is controlling, by the way, when things begin and end, and when, you know, when a trial has completed, when there's futility, all these decisions that are attributed to this quote-unquote independent data and safety monitoring committee, right? And this committee has one person who is, you know, as deep into it as Mills and one person who worked for them at Amtech, followed them at Cytel, and, you know, his career is basically like very, very closely linked to theirs. This is not what independence looks like. So the other thing that rubs me the wrong way on that, and I don't know if it's like standard, is that they are not included on the publication. So they're not listed in the conflict of interest. So you don't know about them unless you dig them up. I don't know if this is, did you, would you confirm, like, would you agree with that? That it should have been done? Well, that like all the other, all the authors on the paper, they have to list their conflicts of interest. So you can at least right. see like, oh, you work, you're funded separately by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Right. But for those guys, the DSCMC, they are not listed on there, so you don't know what they're called. Well, what I would say is that they should be beyond reproach, so that if you look at them, there should be nothing to find. So that's fine that they're not listed. The problem I is that, that 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 <laughs> there is all these like if you have a DSMC right, and you're having to list like a long <laughs> list of like conflicts of interest, like. <laughs> Forget about it. You know, just just don't, just say like, look, we got together with our buddies, decided whatever we wanted to do, and we just did it, and that's what we did. Okay, I'm, at least I'm honest. Like that's you know, at least say that. Like don't <laughs> tell me that. Like you know. By the way, just to mention something that people might not understand, and I know from my from the startup world, Amtech was acquired by Cytel in 2019, just a very very short amount of time before this trial, right? It, it very well might be. It's actually quite common for startups when you're acquired to have performance targets of the technology or the products that you sell to your acquirer. So I don't know this for a fact, but it, I, I definitely would not rule it out. Thorland could have a, not just a, a you know, Cytel stock, right? That would go up if the trial goes well or whatever. He could have an explicit target on his contract that this, you know, that this trial should succeed. And again, I don't know this, but I, I can I can hypothesize that it's very normal, and I shouldn't have to ask this question. <laughs> is what I'm saying. Yeah, ask, ask good Mills, but Mills is okay, fine. Mills is just just work is just doing his, his job, right? Like that that it's fine for Mills to want to succeed, but for the DSMC, ideally they should be neutral and and sort of you know un, uninterested in the result of the trial. What they should want is you know they're called the Data and Safety Monitoring Committee. What they should want is that the data and the safety of the patients is being uh, done at the highest standard, and that's it. 
whether it comes back positive or negative, they should not care. And, and neither Mills nor Hackstrom, I believe, can say that. And of course, there's other people in there that have written many papers, like Sonal Singh has written 26 papers with Mills. I mean, I, I just don't don't get it. Like on, on some level, I'm like, this is just too much. Like just find some random people. Like they could agree with you, but like they don't, you don't have to have like many years of shared academic like career with them, like if possible. Like it's, I, I don't know. It, it, it just baffles me that it's like this blatant. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the DSMC not independent piece. And this is where things start to, to gel, right? Like Because you're like, okay, so the people who were making the decisions what to start, what to stop are not independent. The starting and stopping appears to be kind of odd, you know, and, and we can't rely on the DSMC to have done this for it. Like we can't trust them to have done this correctly. What's worse is that this was noted in the open peer review at Gates Open Research Dot whatever. And Mills responded and said, you know what, that's a good point. I'm going to take Thorland's vote away in that committee. First of all, this was in August. So all of this, whatever we're talking about now is gone. And secondly, the reviewer comes back and says, well, if you're not going to remove him from the committee, because that's what I asked you to do, right? You, he's still chairman. He still runs the agenda. He still possibly has a tiebreaker vote. And he's definitely in the room. Right. So he could, you know, intimidate others, whatever. Like, you don't know what those conversations are like. Again, we don't have minutes, we don't have anything. So that reviewer of the two actually withheld his full approval. Like, if you go there, the, the, this trial has one approval from one reviewer and another one, which is, I don't know how they call it, with, with reservations or something like that. But it's, a, it's like, it's not a green tick, it's a green question mark, right? So for this topic specifically, this reviewer was like, yeah, sorry, man, like, this isn't, this isn't okay and, and you shouldn't do this. And, and, and still, again, the question is, like, why didn't Mills just say, like, you know, that's a good point. As the reviewer said, if they wanted to, you know, consult a statistician like, like Thorland or whatever, they could call him into the meeting when they want to and tell him to go away but they need to be able to talk alone and this was not possible with the, this this arrangement of the of the committee and then we get into the unequal randomization by the way if anybody wants to talk feel free to ask for the mic and and, and just bring your wisdom to the group because i'm yeah uh, part of this is just to make a document that people who are this interested can listen to and part of this is to get my thoughts out as well anyway unequal randomization significant confounding by time the trial reports 1111 randomization however independent analysis shows that much higher enrollment in the ivermectin treatment arms were at the start of the trial. Right. So this is another version of the problem we talked about before. So by my research, they had 75 placebo patients from earlier. Now, what happens if you're an algorithm that's, that's allocating uh, block randomized stratified by age and site patients to these different arms? So what, what I hypothesize happened, right? And, 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 and I might not know what I'm talking about when it comes to biology, but this is computer science. So uh, <laughs> kindly... Uh, yeah, uh, th this is my this is my area actually. What it feels like happened is the ivermectin arm was suspended for two weeks plus you know a bit longer maybe, which means that the algorithm was making three arm blocks. It was it was it was making blocks of patients that were to be allocated to metformin, fluoxamine, and placebo, and again stratified by age and site. So you know this had to have enough patients from the two age cohorts above fifty and below fifty. But the IVM arm was suspended, right? So the blocks it made were shorter. They were smaller. Now, the IVM arm appears again on the horizon on March 23rd. So what I think happened, and you can see the graph on the website, but it doesn't tell the story. What I think happened is the algorithm realized that the arm it thought had gone away had not gone away. And therefore, that had a bunch of blocks that were under allocated. So what it did is it started taking every patient that came in 
and basically adding them to the previously, uh, you know, backfilling the blocks that it had created in the previous two weeks with an additional patient. And, and that patient was always, or, or almost always, right, like 75% of the time by the looks of it, a IBM treatment patient. Now, this has two problems. Remember what we said about the three-dose thing before, right? So if you see a patient with three doses, whatever. Here, it's even more blatant because, like, well, this particular week, 75% of the patients that are coming in are on IVM treatment. Like, you, you, you know by the date and you know by the letter. And also, that particular week was terrible for Brazil. It was one of the worst weeks, rather, probably the worst week, like, in absolute terms, especially in ministries that, 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 that state, of the whole pandemic. Right. So coincidence, I, I don't know, like, you know, it looks awfully odd, but regardless of intent, the point is that this, this matters a lot because you get these patients that have a super high case fatality rate and you disproportionately allocate them to the ivermectin arm and the placebo arm was allocated before. Right. Like th- th- this is a complete and total violation of the uh, structure of, of, a, of a clinical trial. Right. Uh, if you can do this, right, and, and, and it all comes back to the decisions by the by this committee. They decide when to start things and they decide when to stop things. Right. So if they're independent, you could say, look, that the designers of the trial did not know anything about this. But since they are most certainly not independent, it, it all now congeals and you're like, there are real questions that we have to ask. Did they know about this? Was this coordinated in some way? They were on the ground in Brazil, they were doing a clinical trial, they were getting data. They were basically able to have a real time dashboard, not generally from Brazil, but specifically from their patients, about how the case fatality rate was evolving exactly in the places that they were, right? The opportunity was there. The motive, we can debate, but, uh, you know, they have way too many knobs, basically. What, what's showing up is that they have way too many knobs on their hands, and the results look like those knobs were tweaked for whatever reason, intentionally or not, in a very specific way. By the way, there's another implication from this, and I, I resisted this implication for quite a while. But now I'm starting to get more and more convinced about it, which is that not only did this perturbation that was introduced make the ivermectin paper look worse, it made the fluvoxamine paper look better. And actually, just as a short aside, the fluvoxamine paper is fucking weird. Like, they said that the fluvoxamine showed like a 30% improvement in... Was it mortality or hospitalization? I'm not sure. But the headline number was like 31% improvement if you take all the patients. But then they had the secondary thing. It was just like, if you take only per protocol numbers, it was 91% effective. 91, like 30% or 91%. These are These numbers are so different as to be in different universes. And many people were describing these results as like, wow, fluvoxamine is even better than we thought. And I have to say, like, I, I took that conclusion as well. But then I was like, 91%. Like, this basically made coronavirus go away. Like, no matter what you had, who you were, we're talking about high BMI patients with comorbidities here, right? We're talking about people, some of them, like, with, you know, recent cancer. We're talking about ki- kidney problems. And, and several days into the disease. And taking fluvoxamine, apparently... 91% of them did not hit the primary. Like, it's just too much. People should have, like myself included, should have stood up and paid attention at that point when we learned that number in September, I think, because it's just it's just outrageous. And especially the, dif- the difference between 30 and 90 is, is, is absurd. Like, this is not, you know, when you do per protocol, right, what, is, what does per protocol mean? Except for what it means in this trial, which is another story, but in general, it means that you don't just look at all the patients. You look at the patients who you made sure took all the medication. And remember, the fluvoxamine was given as 20 doses over 10 days. So it's quite a complicated regimen, right? But 
at the same time, when they said per protocol in that paper, they meant 80% adherence, right? So you had to have taken at least 16 of the 20 doses. So it wasn't like full, full adherence. It was just like mostly adherence. And so you kind of see why they would have some drop-off, and it did have some drop. Some patients did not, even on the placebo or the treatment arm, go the, the whole way. Fine. But that still doesn't explain, you know, going from 30 to 91. Like, that's just, it's just kind of a whole other, a whole other level. Anyway, yeah, that's that's just something that I don't actually know what happened with the fluvoxamine paper. As I mentioned, it looks to me like there was benefit moved because of the of the stratification and, and randomization issue here with offsetting the, the placebo patients. It, it looks like benefit was moved from ivermectin and towards the placebo and the fluvoxamine arms. And you know, I know that that sounds like a huge accusation, but I mean, you know. Math is math. I don't. I don't know what to do. Just looking at it and and saying what I see. I I really did not expect that this would be uh, showing up. Next one, another mystery. Missing time from onset patients shows statistically significant efficacy. So, <laughs> this was Michelle's sort of, I think, big big finding. At least one of them. Do you want to do you want to talk 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 this through? Me. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just approving here. Ma- yeah. Matthew just jumped on too. Let's see here. It says missing time from onset patients shows statistically significant efficacy. You know, there's 317 ghost group. Yeah. So I don't have the numbers on my fingertips, but they basically had the full number of patients and placebo patients. And then they broke out the per protocol patients, which I guess are people who had either only the three placebo doses and also 100% adherence, whatever that means. I guess they pull them to make sure they actually followed through with their dosing. Michelle, I think this is for the uh, the time time from onset analysis uh, where they yeah, had yeah. three days yeah. before. I don't, I don't think yeah, this applies I'm... to the per- protocol thing, does it? Yeah, that's the whole reason it's they're missing data. Really? Okay, okay, so go ahead. Yeah, so, they're, so they took um, the per protocol patients. I should just pull up the paper. This this might be this is interesting actually we may have a different I mean, uh, understanding of this which is which is this this is exactly why I wanted to have this conversation. Go ahead. Um. So, but for whatever reason, they are missing a lot of placebo patients in the subgroup analysis for the time to symptom onset, where they break out. Basically, it's like you want to know did it make a difference if you were in the zero to three day group or the four to seven day group? And for all the other categories, they have a lot more patients included. So they have a few missing, but they don't have as many missing. And this one, they're missing like a third or more of the patients. And, uh, oh yeah, you're right. I'm mixing up the per protocol thing. Um, So the thing that was interesting though, is because the overall effect of ivermectin was like 0.9, Uh, the relative risk, which is like a 10% effectiveness, but not, I don't know, this is the wrong way to say it, but it's not statistically significant that the confidence interval is too wide, right? Based on their frequentist statistics. So you see an effect, but it's not within the the statistical range. So for all the other things you would expect, you know, if you had a 0.9 average, then, you know, if you're looking at age, like older people might be affected more, younger people might be affected less, but on average, you're still getting that 0.9 effect. For the um, time to onset, the average was really high. It was over one. So it was like whatever patients were missing there that weren't included in that data had an overwhelmingly positive effect. And they calculated it out. I don't know who did that, but it was on IVM Meta. Yeah, I've got the numbers here if you want. Um... It's it's 0.5, right? Yeah, it says uh, relative risk 0.51, P equals 002. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, so like if, if you back calculate the missing patients, it's extremely positive for ivermectin. So it's just this question of like, why are those patients missing? And why are they so positive? Is it just random chance or what? And it's still an unsolved mystery in my mind. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't we don't really know. I think when we find out whatever it is that happened, this would also slot in there somehow. But again, like the like the deaths that are the, the the sums that are like, you know, plus or minus. This one is also like a mystery that is related to the whole chaos, but I don't know like I can't I can't connect it uh, directly. Hey Matthew. Hey Alex. How's it going? Uh yeah. I'm doing all right. You you you're you're following along the uh, the the gradual you know loss of sanity that I'm undergoing. <laughs> yeah, I jumped in a little bit late, and um, you know I, I have not done the deep dive that you have on this paper, but I was listening just now, and I thought you know we need some kind of a terminology that describes a minimum standard of evidence, meaning like it, you know we're talking about patients missing, right? And 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 of course you know this was true in like the Pfizer vaccine trial. You know, the, the first Pfizer vaccine trial report comes out and there are all these exclusions and, and uh, like that, that's frustrated the hell out of me ever since that report came out. And it's not the only you know trial that I've seen that in during the pandemic. Right. Um, but, in, but in particular, it's always trials that I feel like, you know, the worst about, you know, like I, I wouldn't even want to talk about it unless I did a deep dive. Right. Right. Like that's, that's the way you feel every time you see that, that there should be a name for this. There should be a name for like, there should be a, a minimum standard. There should be a set of things that is included in any trial before you even consider it complete, before you consider it a minimum standard of evidence. And this should be one of those things that should at least be explained to a minimal degree before you, before you call it a minimal standard of evidence. It's crazy because I think most people like maybe the mainstream researchers, they assume that if something's published in, you know, the Lancet, NEJM, JAMA, that it has passed those hurdles. So they just take the abstract at face value. But that's obviously not the case. Yeah, type thing equal, equals uh, well-run clinical trial. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's um, the, the interesting thing here, Matthew, which I don't know if you've um, come across these adaptive trials, but I am just deeply conflicted, right? Because I actually quite love the design and the statistics they're using. It's cleaner. It's, you know, the Bayesian stats and stuff is beautiful. That's awesome. But like everything new, right, it doesn't have the safeguards that you would need to be trustworthy. And not only that, so, so it kind of presents a bunch of knobs to manipulate things, right? This thing I mentioned before, moving benefit from uh, ivermectin to fluvoxamine in, in, in a standard randomized trial, you don't have that opportunity. The thing right? is, you don't, they had, you don't have multiple arms to play with. If they had followed the protocol, I don't think they would have had these problems. Because um, even in a even in a regular RCT, if you front loaded placebo and then back loaded your patients. That would mess up the randomization. You have to. Well, that, that's, these are the consecutive trials, right? That that, that this is what Marek did, not not in a bad way. Like he actually called it out. He's like, "This is what I'm doing. I'm going to take the first six months patients. I'm going to put them here. The second six months, I'm going to put them there. That's a different kind of trial, and you analyze it differently, uh, and you expect different statistical patterns. Which <laughs> Matthew has demonstrated yeah. why and people are you know, confused. If these aren't purposeful mistakes, and they're just things that happen because it's you know chaotic. Right. They have to put them in the discussion and say, hey, you know, there is this offset and hey, we do know that there's this variant and we're going to do our best to like at least call it out. And they didn't do any of that. They didn't point out any of their mistakes. It's yeah. all hidden. Yep. 
Next, side effect profile consistent with many treatment patients not receiving authentic ivermectin and or control patients receiving ivermectin. So this one, this argument I'm, I'm, I'm not too hot about. Like, I get it, but also, like, I don't know. And this kind of goes to the whole exclusion-inclusion vortex, which is another sort of set of facts there that is murky. So what they're saying is basically, like, if you look at diarrhea, for instance, right? Like, it's, it's what do they say? It's actually lower in the treatment arm. Diarrhea is, like, a well-known side effect of, of ivermectin. So they're like, well how could this be right and there's a similar pattern in the lopez medina uh paper where blurred vision is one of the ivermectin tells and it was like again quite high in the in the placebo group and they're like what everybody in colombia is is seeing blurred like now Like, like what's the deal so I get it, and it's kind of like an indication, but on its own, this wouldn't prove anything, right? You could be like, well, you know, these people are taking ivermectin forever, so they're adapted to it. There's all sorts of uh, explanations you can come up with, and it has some value to me as a like adding up to all the other ones. But on its own, I don't see it as like an extremely, you know, like if if this is the only thing you had, you wouldn't say like, you know, that's it, you know, we caught them or something. This is it's like a hint maybe that something's going sideways, but you, you don't really know what to make of it without more information. As is this thing, a local Brazilian investigator reports that at the time of the trial, there was only one likely placebo manufacturer, and they reportedly did not receive a request to produce identical placebo tablets. They also report that compounded ivermectin in Brazil is considered unreliable. So this is kind of, I think this might be Flavio Catajani. I'm not sure uh, where this is coming from. Again, interesting if we had that sort of written out properly from, you know, the email from the manufacturer, et cetera, et cetera, that's the kind of stuff that was used to take down Carvalho. So it has to count like an important thing. If the local placebo manufacturer was not contacted and there's only one and they say, no, we have no idea how they made the placebos, then, you know, okay, maybe they imported them, but that has to now be explained. Incorrect conclusion. This is one of my favorite ones because I think either Meta is correct at bringing it up, but incorrect in how they describe it, or at least partially correct in how they describe it. So they say, you know, the conclusion states that ivermectin did not result in a lower incidence or hospitalization or ER observation over six hours. This is incorrect. Hospitalization was 17% lower, just not statistically significant. Now, first of all, the paper does not mention statistical significance anywhere. I challenge you to open it up and do a search and say, look for statistically significant. These words do not occur. The words p-value do not occur anywhere in the paper. It is full Bayesian statistics, right? So we don't actually know if it was statistically Strictly speaking, we don't actually know if it was statistically significant. We, we haven't seen those numbers. What we've seen is Bayesian numbers. And the Bayesian numbers tell us that it did not reach the 95% confidence interval. But the interpretation of that, and, and I'm, I'm sure Matthew can tell us a lot more about this, is not the same as the frequentist intervals. And that's why I shared this paper before, this article before about credible intervals, which is kind of the Bayesian equivalent. The reason I shared that article is because with Bayesian stats, which is, I don't know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people are, are saying are, are better, uh, but uh, whatever. So let me put it the other way. With frequentist statistics, right, if you have an interval, you can make no statements basically about where the value is within that interval. Right. It could, so, so that's why they say if it crosses the, the one line, if there's a chance it could be negative, it could be actually harmful, that is, then you really have to stay away because you can make no statements, even if it's like a little bit, right? You can make no statements about where the actual weight of the evidence is. It could actually be on the negative side and you, you really should not try to parse that interval. With Bayesian stats, that's not the case. You see a, a bell curve and that bell curve tells you where the probability is. So the closer you get to the middle, or wherever the top of the of the bell is, 
the more likely you are to get you, you can't say that with Bayesian statistics right so when they say basically this is the thing that drives me insane if you go to the supplemental appendix and look at figure i believe it's s2 like i'm talking about like it's reduced extent to the back of the library right you will see this not the, the, the Bayesian stats right and they do say that if we take all the patients that we had intention to treat Ivermectin comes out 81.4% probability of superiority. If we take modified intention to treat, which means that the, 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 the patient triggered an event before 24 hours of being randomized, Ivermectin comes ahead 79.4% probability of superiority, right? And then if we take the per-protocol numbers, which is what Michelle was talking about before, only the three-day patients, basically, Ivermectin comes out ahead like 64% of the time. Let's leave the per protocol thing out because it's a mess and we don't really understand how that works. But the other ones are like, you know, roughly 80% chance that I've making it superior. Now, this is not, what did they say here? How did they write this conclusion? Did not result in lower incidence, right? Like, you, you, not only do you not have this confidence to, to say black and white, you, you have confidence to say something positive. Like, if I tell you, here's a treatment, it might help you, but only four out of five times. Right. Like it's like, uh, you know, 80 percent chance it helps or it might not help. Would you say that? Well, since I don't know about the fifth time, then there's no indication <laughs> it helps. Like this, this is a statement they went, they went and made to the press. They said no indication of clinical usefulness. Like, no, it's like, not even a hint. Like, you know, it's like, OK, all right, I get it. Uh, but the numbers are showing different things. Right. And again, because it's Bayesian stats, we don't have to be limited by the classical frameworks that sort of put extremely tight sort of limits on how you're allowed to interpret things. They are far more intuitive. They're, they're what you would normally think these intervals mean. A lot of people mistakenly think that the, the, the confidence intervals mean what the Bayesian intervals actually mean, because that's the intuitive explanation. Anyway, yeah, so the conclusion yeah. is definitely incorrect. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, if I could jump in here. So I'm, I'm kind of an applied statistician. We did lots of, you know, Bayesian analysis when I was on you know, Wall Street, if we were modeling something and we were kind of interested in, you know, curious about whether or not the, the, the variable had an effect on a system, in my experience, almost all of these probabilities are pushed away from extremes in practice when you're doing Bayesian analysis. In other words, if you get uh, a probability of 12, it's probably more likely closer to zero. If you get a probability of 80, it's probably more likely closer to one when you begin running your machine and practicing. And, and, and it, it's one of those things where, where you know, th there's no mathematics that justifies anything like that. And, and really and truly, you know, it, this isn't even the way statistics is supposed to be used, right? Like biomedical applications are, are just, you know, they're, they're, Continuous at best because, you know, the statistics are not as designed to give you a real number as it's made out to be. I mean, like, what does 80% mean anyway? Like, are, are we in like a quantum state or something? Right. So right. really and truly, it's more up to judgment than anything. But that's my that's my experience with applied statistics. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's, you know, it's 80% if you're facing the gamma variant, if you're, uh, you know, so many days after symptoms, if you yada, 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 right? Like, okay, well, how you take that and make a statement about the broader world is another issue and probably part of what you're, you're pointing at. So I don't know if you've seen this, uh, Matt, but I've, I've now put it at the top of the space, there, this figure. If you haven't seen it before, you'll freak out because this is in the appendix. And they literally like just spell it out that it is like, a, you know, 80 percent ish probability superiority. But in the conclusion of the main paper and in, in the press, they say the exact opposite. So when I saw this, I was just like, <laughs> I was baffled. And, and by the way, this figure is significant for another reason. Because they do a lot of Bayesian stats in the TOGETHER trial in general, and they're very proud of them. 
these same diagrams are featured in the metformin paper, the hydroxychloroquine paper, the fluvoxamine paper. These diagrams are always in the main body of the paper. With ivermectin, they pushed it back to the appendix. And again, no explanation why. Right. You're starting to get the picture of the direction of the decisions, but it's just worth worth noting. Okay, next. Uh, ivermectin use widespread in the community. So, so this is weird. This is super weird, and I've, I've dug super deep into this, so I, I want to get my state of mind out, uh, out to the world on this. So, their original presentation on August 11 did not mention anything about exclusion for ivermectin use, and this was highlighted... Steve Kirsch, who's on good terms with Mills, also wrote it somewhere where I can't find that article now for the life of me, but I, I read it at the time that, you know, the yes, you know, this was a limitation of the trial that did not exclude for ivermectin. And even Mills has been quoted as saying, like, yeah, sure, but, like, you know, like the use of the community wasn't that high anyway, so it washes out. First of all, if it wasn't that high, then why didn't you put in the exclusion criteria? That has to be clarified somehow. Why the hell you didn't just rule it out? It's, it's the obvious thing you do, right? You want to know if your control group is, is clean. But then when they publish the paper, finally, you look at the exclusion criteria. It does not say ivermectin use. You look at the protocol. It does not say ivermectin use. You, you look at the normal places you would look at, and there's no hint that they exclude for use of ivermectin. But in the discussion section, they have this weird paragraph about kind of a couple of sentences about, of course, we extensively screened our patients for ivermectin use for COVID, right? These words are, trust me, like workshopped over and over again to find the right words. And of course, we exclude them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I've got a number of questions here. First of all, why is this in the discussion, not in the exclusion criteria in the paper, right? That's why you put these things. This is not complicated. Secondly, what is this for COVID thing, right? If they used ivermectin because it was like a traditional cure for malaria, do they get to go in the control group? Like, of course... The- <laughs> What? And in general, it's just, it's just baffling. And the, the weird part about it is that the, the, the authors kind of come out swinging there. They're like, and I'm sure the next thing you're going to say is that we didn't dose them enough, huh? It's like, no, dude, like, there's a way we do these things. Like, you, you're supposed to put your exclusion criteria in the exclusion criteria. How did you know this, right? Because the forms don't include a tick checkbox for used ivermectin. What they do have is a place to note down concomitant medications. So we have to accept that the places where they did these trials, which are 12 separate sites, filled in these long forms with the patients and asked them about every medication they took, and they filled in everything. And then in the particular medication box that maybe some patients said, yeah, had taken some ivermectin, there's an indication, like there's a reason why you use ivermectin. And in there, they filled in COVID, right? So let me summarize this for you in a, in a way that it'll make sense. These people were not able to get how long it was from symptom onset for 23% of their patients. They couldn't get an answer, or at least they don't seem to know the answer, for how long since you had symptoms. They're missing ages of patients, right? And you're telling me that they filled in all of this, they went to all the concomitant medications, they found that the, whoever was using ivermectin, and the reason why, and then they excluded those, right? My sense is that, and this is why this for COVID thing is there, is because even if some had written ivermectin, they just didn't fill in the reason. And therefore, they could, the authors here can claim that, well, it was for, you know, it was for parasites and it's probably a low dose and it was probably like twice a year or whatever. So it doesn't matter. But that does not mean extensive screening. Somebody had said actually that maybe they went afterwards and called everybody after this was raised as an issue. But the number of patients cited in the paper is exactly the same number of patients cited on August 11. So if they did that, they didn't exclude anybody. And the other thing that I find really weird is that Mills, when he talks about this, is like, well, you know, the use in the community wasn't that high anyway. 
Here's the problem with that. First of all, I have a publication from the area, from Brazil, that is, at the time, exactly the time the, the trial was ongoing, saying that ivermectin use has shot up nine times. Nine times. <laughs> 9x. Uh, and secondly, that publication is not pro-ivermectin. It actually talks about like, oh, we're freaking out about the safety issues or whatever, right? So this is not like some, you know, thing that you could say like, okay, well, these guys are clearly like biased. Uh, they're, they're trying to like repeat the trial or something. This is just a normal Brazilian website. You can put it on Google Translate and it'll show you straight up. It says nine times increase in use. Now, Mills does not know this. You might say like, okay, it's not his obligation to know this. Yeah, but if he had actually extensively screened and he had actually excluded a bunch of patients, he would have seen the same thing. He would have seen a big mass of patients taking ivermectin. The fact that he didn't see it, now we are forced to compare. It's like, okay, is this website lying for some reason? Can we get to the underlying data from like from you know the marketing to see how the sales were going at that time? And if they were high, why didn't they see them in the in the trial? Like you know, there, there, there's a lot of questions here. Anyway, I just thought of another explanation, right? Maybe the people who did get ivermectin did so much better that they, they were fine and that they didn't go to the trial. So that's confounding in a, in a different way. That might not be insignificant, actually. Let's say ivermectin works for a subset of people. Can, can I jump in real quick? Yeah, 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 please go ahead. This sounds like informative censoring. As in- and and the, the fact that they would run the trial in the same location. So, okay, informative censoring is um, is what took place in the Dagan trial, the, the, the Dagan study on vaccines in Israel, where they had um, what they called rolling cohorts, where people in the study were sometimes measured as if they were unvaccinated, measured as if they were vaccinated. And, and what this does is it, is it creates a, a situation where some people are measured more completely as if they, they you know, ran the measurement to exhaustion. And some people are not. And so like in the Dagan trial, you had all these people who were vaccinated who died at a point later than was measured. But that death was literally left out of the computations. Oh, right. Anytime this is kind of the have... same kind of like 28-day follow-up stuff, right? Where, where they're like, yeah, if you die on day 30, that doesn't count. Exactly. Because they were they were no longer matched with a person who died who was in the placebo arm, then uh, their period of observation was cut off. And if what you have is a period of observation that's cut off prior, that's the same thing. It's still informative censorship. And when you do that kind of informative censorship, the standard is that you have to run a sensitivity analysis before you make your claims. All all these types of issues are exactly why I think that, that Bayesian estimates usually like the, the reality is that they usually move toward the extremes and anything that that does that in the Bayesian analysis you should have a list when you're done with the Bayesian analysis like things that would that would move the curve right and if they're all if they're all going to move the curve in the same direction that's where things look really suspect this this ha- actually uh, I, I suggested a note on um, a blog post that Norman Fenton just wrote up um, on this basis he, he was actually looking at the Sheldrick attack on Merrick yeah and Fenton ran a um, a uh, Bayesian analysis on whether or not those you know what 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 is the probability of fraud. But all of the things that you could list that did not go into the Bayesian analysis all move that probability in the same direction. So I said, hey, just mention that this is a ceiling on the probability. In this right. case, for this study, it should be a floor on the probability. Is what it right. sounds like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's a very good that's a very good way to put it. Especially given some of the other things we're going to talk about. Um, anyway, so why should the company? Yeah, and by the way, just to mention, like when we say like, oh, you know, I'm making uh, sales shot up in the area. This was the official recommended uh, treatment by the government for COVID. 
right? Like in Brazil, that moment in time, there was this thing called the COVID kit, very politically contentious. Not everybody took it. Actually, the numbers I've seen is about 25% of the people took it. The establishment hated it, but it was the, you know, if we're looking at what was the recommended treatment by the Brazilian government, they gave you the whole panel. It was ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, I believe, and a few other things. So it's not unthinkable that it would be getting used, given that, you know, the government was saying, use it. And the fact that they kind of just added this note in the discussion that, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, we of course we excluded. What it tells me is that they probably did a check after the fact, and they constructed a description of the situation that would allow them to justify their prior results without excluding any patients. But in reality, they didn't question as they should have, and they did not exclude as they should have. Uh, that's my sense. But again, if I could see the data, I would have a much better understanding. And of course, we don't get data. Anyway, okay, the next one, I'll get really worked up here because I, I really think this is important separately from everything else, but I do think it, it ties into the story. Single dose recruiting continued after change. So this is one I, I dug up. I was looking at their applications to the Brazilian Ethics Committee for the protocol. Right. So the, the trial began the ivermectin part on January 20th. The protocol they sent to the Brazilians in order to reset the ivermectin arm from low dose to high dose, the protocol itself is dated February 15th. And in fact, this protocol is what is attached to the paper. If you go to the protocol thing, you can see at the, at the bottom, it says working paper, February 15th. Okay. February 15th, however, on the low dose arm had only recruited 19 patients, as far as I can tell. The rest of the patients, 59 patients, were recruited in the low dose arm after they were clearly intending to reset the trial. And, and that, I believe, I, I assume it was because they thought the dose was too low. So why are you recruiting patients to an arm of a trial that you've already decided to terminate so that the data is going to be thrown away? And presumably because you believe the dose is too low, so you're not going to help these patients. 59 patients, right? If we believe the fluvoxamine data, which these patients could have been allocated to, you know, somebody statistically died because of this. And, and it's not... Uh, it's not okay at all. There's no explanation, right? Again, normally what happens is the DSMC terminates the arm, a new protocol is written up, the requests for authorization are sent, you get the authorization back and you start over. Here, we don't know what the DSMC said. There's no mention of any decision, but there's a new protocol that appears just a few weeks into the first arm, the low-dose arm of ivermectin. They continue the, the low-dose arm for quite a while, and then they terminate it on a day of March 4th. We don't know why that day was, was chosen. Then they get back the response on March 15th. They say that they got it back on March 21st, which is like, why lie about that now? Because the you can see on the, on the Brazilian website, it says March 15th clearly. But they report that they got the approval back on the March 21st. And they started on March 23rd, right? What this looks like to me is that they had complete control over both when the low-dose arm ended and when the high-dose arm started. Not good. But also, like, we can talk about messing with the data, but this is real people who were allocated to an arm that appear to be, you know, the, 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 the people that were running the trial themselves did not believe it would help people. And even if they did, the, the data that they would extract from this, uh, they did not intend to use. I, I think this is, a, like, beyond the manipulation element that it highlights, I think it, it's, it's a massive ethical lapse, and I don't know where the board was at that time. Yeah, I think I think this is probably the one that I mean, arguably, there's others that are worse, you know, in, in effect to the real world. But this is like actually 59 real people that I can sort of visualize in my head. And it upsets me, I think, a lot more than the other ones. 
Anyway, next one. Per protocol population different to the compared contemporary fluvoxamine arm. I think this is because the per protocol definition is different, right? So the per protocol definition in the fluvoxamine arm is just did they follow the protocol wherever that was? Whereas in the ivermectin arm, it was did they take the three dose placebo? And therefore, the numbers are very different because it's like 92% adherence in the fluvoxamine arm, 42% adherence. But I think this is a matter of per protocol, not meaning per protocol, not, not meaning the same thing in these two trials. So it, I, that's bad, but I, I don't think it goes deeper than different definitions, which is, which is not a good thing, by the way, just to be clear. The next one, a time of onset required for inclusion, missing for 317 patients. This is the same 317 patients we talked about with Michelle before. So these patients, not only did they do extremely well, weird, not only were they missing from the subgroup analysis because they didn't know the time from onset, there's a real question here of how the hell did you put them in the trial to begin with if you didn't know how long since symptoms? You claim that they have to be at most seven days from symptoms to be added to the trial. So if you don't know that answer, now what might have been is that they maybe vouch that it's like less than seven days, but I don't know how much. So they get like past the binary hurdle, but not with enough precision. But again, this this requires explanation. And of course, there's like missing figures for BMI, et cetera, et cetera. Conflicting comorbidity accounts. This is a really fascinating one, and, I, and I've got a lot more work to do on it because I've started digging into it, and it's, it's baffling. So what they're saying is basically like, if you sort of understand how the, how the patients are structured in the trial, the ivermectin placebo arm is a, is a clean subset, almost completely a clean subset of the fluvoxamine placebo arm, right? So like 99% basically of the placebo patients in the, in the ivermectin arm must be also patients in the fluvoxamine placebo arm. Now, because this is the whole point of this trial, by the way, right? Like the, the reason why you're patient and you're running all these arms at the same time and you're trying to sort of spin plates is to share the placebo arm. And there's an ethical argument for this, right? You, you get to put fewer patients at risk. And there's a financial argument for this. You, you get to use the same money to, to learn more. Great. I'm just saying like it's not something strange that the placebo arm was shared in principle. However, when they talk about comorbidities, right, the flavoxamine arm shows 16 patients with asthma. The ivermectin arm shows 60 patients with asthma. It's like, okay, it, it can't be more, right? It has to be less. And, and there's other numbers like that where the uh, comorbidities don't match, right? So then you're like, okay, was it the same arm or was it not? Because if it wasn't, then how did you randomize it? You know, that opens up a lot more questions. Maybe there's an answer here. I don't, I don't know what it is. Next concern, conflicting placebo arm counts across IVM and fluvoxamine arms. This is basically what we talked about before. This is how I concluded that the 77, 75 patients were backdated. There's no other way to make the numbers make sense than to assume that the patients from the time of pausing the ivermectin low-dose arm to the time of starting the ivermectin high-dose arm, these like two weeks uh, plus something, uh, those placebo patients must have been used for the ivermectin arm. There's no other way to make the numbers make sense. The, the problem is that the authors swear up and down that that did not happen, right? They say very clearly, nope, it was all patients after March 23, both for treatment and placebo. They, made, they say that extremely clearly everywhere, and they connect it to the ethics approval that they got, as they claim, on March 21st. So they couldn't, like, if they have moved things around, they're not, they're not saying it. They're, they're swearing this didn't happen, but the numbers they've released 
make it super clear that there's no other explanation. You know, math is math. Like, and I'm not using like complicated statistics here. I'm doing basic addition subtraction. There is no other explanation that would that would stand. There is one other explanation that would stand, but it's not good, which is that they continued recruiting for the ivermectin placebo arm after the termination of the fluvoxamine and ivermectin arms. Right. So they they went all the way deep into the summer in August and continued recruiting placebo patients. But that's still being offset, right? It's it's not offset before, it's offset after. But so what? Like that's still still a problem and still conflicts with, with everything they've said everywhere about which patients they're using and when. So it's no better, basically. There is an alternative, but it's no better than, than this one. And it's possibly worse because those patients were definitely far removed from the gamma wave. As the gamma wave was increasing, these patients were recruited then. And you're saying, well, there's a difference between surging and like really being at its worst. And that creates statistical noise. If you went and took patients, you know, seven months later, that is a completely different population of patients with different inclusion criteria as well. It's a mess. So honestly, if I was the authors, I wouldn't go with that explanation because it's post-dating the placebo is, is worse than pre-dating it. Next, conflicting target enrollment. So this is one that I feel slightly guilty about because I think I started this. But truth be told, they are inconsistent. So there's some versions of the protocol. And again, there's multiple versions of the protocol to keep track of, et cetera, et cetera. But some versions of the protocol say both 800 and 681 patients targeted. Mills, in his interview in June, said, we are planning to have 800 patients, point blank. Right. So what's the deal? Were you planning to have 800, but then we went back to 681? Were you, you know, the numbers 800 and 681 come up all over the place all the time. I'm kind of giving them this as confusion, essentially. I say like, okay, this is bad, but probably they did intend to have a 681 and they... I don't know, misspoke. I, I don't I don't even know what to say. That it's it's still careless. But this still runs into the problem of fluvoxamine, the paper on fluvoxamine continuing on after the 681, right? How the hell did you miss this? Like it went to 681 patients and then you just let it run on for another, what is it, like 60 patients, 61 patients? Like that's like almost 10% overrun. Everything else I can make make sense except for the fluvoxamine overrun in patients. Like, and what's more, which is also kind of uh, a tell, on their website before this paper came out, they said the ivermectin trial was terminated for futility, right? This means it was terminated early because it didn't reach the statistical limits that we wanted. When we look at the numbers now, this could not have happened. The ivermectin arm was definitely within the bands of uh, probability that they had predetermined would not be terminated for futility. And now they claim, no, 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 we didn't terminate it for futility. We terminated it because we completed the trial. Fine. But why did you say you terminated for futility? Why did you continue the fluvoxamine trial? And why did you say in your website, again, for fluvoxamine, that you terminated it for superiority, right? That means that according to what they were saying on their website, neither the ivermectin trial nor the fluvoxamine trial completed, which would make sense if you were applying to get 800. But now they're saying, no, no, the plan was 681, which also doesn't make sense, right? So the, the target enrollment business, I think initially I was far more convinced that the 681 number was like added later. I'm not convinced of that anymore. But I also can't make sense of all the information that we have. Like, there, there's a lot of conflicting data and, and, and some opportunity for manipulation within this conflict. So the next one is kind of what I mentioned already. Reportedly terminated for futility, although futility threshold not reached. The next one is a screening to treatment delay. And I'm not dug into this much. I know we've we've confirmed it with the, the, the folks that I'm uh, playing around with, uh, the numbers and the data, I guess. The, the folks that we're, we're analyzing this, 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 this trial. I know we've confirmed that this happened for at least some patients. But I, I don't know. Sadly, there is this document that the IVM Meta folks are, are linking to, which is 
they call it the original protocol. And indeed, if you see, it says drive.google.com and it has original protocol in parentheses, but it's not signed. And I don't know where it came from. I have not seen it be provided by together. They might have been provided somewhere by somebody. It's dated March 11, which is a very important date. It's like after February 15th, right? So it must be post the protocol that they sent to the Brazilian authorities. It is before March 15th, where the approval came back. So I'm wondering if it was maybe a candidate revision of the paper that they never actually completed because it doesn't appear anywhere. So so I don't know where it came from and it has some interesting hints, but I don't know what to make of it unless I understand where it's sourced from. So there's that mean delay. The reported mean number of days from symptoms to randomization likely only includes the known onset patients. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. Like they, they say mean delay, 3.9 days, I believe. Okay. If you don't know how many days of symptoms 23% of your patients had, how do you know what the mean delay was, right? So clearly it must have been for only the patients that they knew for, which is fine, but then that's not really your mean delay. It's the mean delay for a subset. And we don't know what the the true number is. What's more, they did they did this kind of statistical trick called uh uh not trick, like statistical whatever, the tool called uh, multiple imputation. Imputation, not amputation by the way. Multiple imputation, which kind of like fills in the data based on like, you know, hints you might have from elsewhere. Most of these missing patients were allocated to the late treat group, the group that had more than four days of symptoms. So if they know something, they know that these people are generally late, right? So then does that move your mean? Probably. How much? We don't know. Um, so fluvoxamine, I, I, I was asking myself why fluvoxamine might be sort of in the middle of this mess. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I never looked very closely at the fluvoxamine trials, but one of the things that I know about it is that um, it tested. It looked it looked good, but that Steve Kirsch, after uh, you know uh, paying for for trials to be run, could not find a pharmaceutical company that would sponsor it. Right? Like I I don't know the details of approval process, but apparently, in order to get this medication approved for treatment for COVID, you have to get um, you have to get somebody to like a pharmaceutical company to vouch for it. I don't know. Like it, it, that seems like a weird conflict of interest. To begin with, like, I don't think anything should be written that way. But let's say that you have already set up the system designed to reject fluvoxamine on that basis that no one will will vouch for it. Then if you include it now in, in a study like this, if there's any opportunity for finagling, whether it's informative censorship, some sort of a rolling cohort, um, I noticed that 60 is halfway the difference between 800 and, and 681. I don't know if that if that means anything. Um, yeah, I haven't done the deep dive that you have into into this trial data, but it, it just sort of stands out as weird. Like that, like if and, and what you said about the per protocol versus overall efficacy rate stands out in my head too. Like if, if there's if there is something those two numbers are so disparate yeah, and maybe exactly right you expect some improvement but like not, not this. Was, maybe fluvoxamine was there to create the opportunity for some sort of censorship of the data i'm you know like okay in my 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 darker moments i'm not saying this as fact i'm saying this as sort of fiction a little bit i'm saying like imagine if they said if somebody was sitting in the smoke filled room right and talking to the buddies and say like what are we going to do about this thing what if we you know set this up in such a way that will benefit one of the medications but we we set up you know a dummy we set up something that like doesn't really work but whatever it's like okay well what are we going to give them like what, what do you propose we give oh i know what about an antidepressant lol 
<laughs> and then the other guy comes back. It's like, dude, this don't even work for depression. He's like, I know. <laughs> Right, like it, 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 there's a cosmic joke element to 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 I mean, showing up there is what I'm saying. Uh, I'm not I'm not really saying that this is what actually happened. I'm just sort of hypothesizing that if it indeed does not work, and and the other studies I've heard about fluvoxamine also look good, but of course I haven't dug into them, so I don't know. It's totally possible that fluvoxamine is is one thing that does work, and and maybe. If you think about it from a from a PR management perspective, you'd rather create a new wave that you can then nuke later, while helping you nuke this current wave, than to give more evidence to the the current sort of movement that you're you're, you're in trouble with. And also, by the way, if you are a pharmaceutical company that's manipulating this, say, I'm, I, I don't know what happened. I'm just saying, like, if if a pharmaceutical company was part of this design, they would probably want any early treatments to come to market after Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, right, are approved. So first of all, you don't mess with their approvals. And secondly, now you're fighting on the open market, right? You're open, you're fighting on advertising. You're not fighting on does it exist, does it not exist? So even if fluvoxamine is the perfect drug and it works, you know, 91% of the time, whatever, whatever, it has to come to market. It, you know, it, it didn't have the wave of support that Vermectin had, and therefore it would take more time, right? The, the argument would be like, we need more uh, data here. By the way, one fun fact, some of the counter together trial arguments that I've found, I found from people arguing against it because they don't want approval of fluvoxamine. Just again, another cosmic joke here. There's, you know, the, the establishment people, like uh, the, the, the super pro establishment people who hate this trial, not because it showed that ivermectin does not work, but because it showed that fluvoxamine did. Right. It is a multi-sided conflict. It kind of reminds me of the Syrian civil war in a way. Like you've got, you know, the Kurds on the one side, Al-Qaeda on the other. You've got the, you know, the, the government bringing in the Russians and the Iranians. Like it, there's just like all forms of players in this in this game. And it's, it is fascinating to try to navigate it, I have to say. Okay. Next up, viral load not reported. Um, yeah, this is one of many things in the protocol that they said they would report and they didn't. Why? We don't know. They didn't say. Are we entitled to be suspicious? Yes. It's the same thing with subgroups, by the way. I don't think IVM Meta has uh, noted this, but in the subgroup analysis, they have some subgroups that they reported on that they did not pre-announce. They have some subgroups that they pre-announced but they did not report on. Some of those are actually reported on in the fluvoxamine paper, but not the ivermectin paper, by the way. And then some of the groups that they did report on and that were pre-announced have their boundaries shifted. So uh, remember this whole time of onset thing we're talking about, right? In the protocol, they say very clearly, 120 hours uh, from onset. That's where the line is going to be. 120 hours is five days, uh, I believe, right? Uh, yeah. So why is it now set at essentially four? You know, like they say zero to three and four to seven. Why, why did they move that back to 96 hours? We don't know. So the subgroup analysis is, is, is a mess. And the same, the, the same thing with age, where instead of going... They've got they've moved the equals that there. It's like uh, I don't remember exactly how it was and how they shifted it, but if they had announced earlier that it would go for less than or equal to fifty and fifty and above, what they reported was less than fifty and fifty or equals, uh, sorry, more than or equal to fifty on, on the other. So the, the the year fifty cohort, people who were exactly fifty years old, were moved from the one cohort to the other. Why? No explanation. Next up. Okay, this is one, again, I, I picked that up and I'm quite animated about it. Incorrect dose reporting. Many patients at higher risk due to BMI may not have received uh, lower per kg doses and show lower efficacy. This is quite outrageous. So if you see the paper and you read it, you read the whole paper, top to bottom, you come away with the understanding that these guys gave people 
400 mcg i think that's micrograms per kilogram of body weight fine then you look in the again supplemental appendix i believe and they say we gave them you know whatever it was 6 to 12 tablets whatever but scaling up to 90 kilograms of weight 90 kilograms i don't know in, in pounds but it's kind of like a normal weight i'm, I'm more than that <laughs> lots of us are more than that in fact i looked up you know what the average height of a male is in brazil and i've seen different conflicting reports uh, one said 171 one said 174 if it was 174 the the average weight at which you become 30 bmi is 91 kilograms right why is 30 bmi important because the trial was balanced exactly in the middle. Like had half the patients were lower than 30, half the patients were higher than 30. What does this tell us? Let's just roughly say half, even though it doesn't have to be exactly in the middle. If half of them are, are 30 BMI and above, they would have been underdosed because they would have been more than 90 kilos. The ones that were below, they would have been dosed appropriately. So you're looking at roughly half your men in this trial being underdosed. And some of the women, not all of the women, maybe a third of the women, I don't know. We need to see the data. Being underdosed. Right, so the the report four hundred mcg, the average dose they provided per kilogram was not four hundred mcg. It could not have been, right? So so this is basically false. Like the, the paper says we did X, right? And you look in the appendix and there's like this, this little asterisk that if you expand it out, it looks it looks different. Now I've seen Bauer saying at the time that well we use the FLCCC protocol anyway. What's your what's your problem? That's what they were saying anyway. Now they've changed their dosing later, and now that's why they're complaining. That's not true. The FLCCC was suggesting 200 mcg for five days. These guys were doing 400 mcg for three days. Okay, you're like, well, you know, that's actually still more, right? 200 for five days versus, so, you know, 1,000 basically over the treatment, whereas these guys were giving 1,200. Okay, 20% more. That's kind of cool. Yes, but again, with this underdosing element, that means your top is dosed a lot less. And and I've actually graphed this out. And indeed, above 100 kilos or so, the delta with FLCCC starts to open and it keeps opening. Now, high BMI patients are not just important because they're a cohort that was underdosed. They're also the cohort that's the highest risk. We, we know this. <laughs> you know, obesity and, and, and COVID do not go well together. So we're looking at a situation where the more at risk you were, the less effective dose you got. Right. So I, I asked Bauer today, actually, I had a back and forth with him on Twitter. I was like, why did they do this? And he kept changing the topic. He talked to me about the COVID out trial, the active six trial, the average here, the average there. He's an author on this paper. He should know this, or at least he should be able to stick to the topic. It's like something about the average distribution of weights in uh, Brazil, he told me. I'm like, no, you have half your patients are over 30 BMI. Your average male, 30 BMI is 90 kilos. So your high BMI cohort, half the men and like many of the women, were underdosed, and he didn't have anything to say to that. So if there was some justification, he would have given it to me. And, and so this, to me, stands out as a very strong reason why this, the study is flawed. And also, again, ethical lapse. Like, there's a 90-kilogram number there that has to have a, a citation to it. Like, why did you add this, right? This is not what the FLCCC did. In fact, let's add a secondary topic here. The FLCCC recommended, even at that time, I've checked the V9 version of their outpatient protocol, recommends taking ivermectin with a meal, right, which increases the bioavailability. These guys did not do that. They explicitly said the opposite, which reduces. So so, so even the numbers you see compared, FLCCC versus together trial, which kind of look the lower weights, they look better for together than FLCCC at the time. That doesn't take into account that taking with a meal has a, a, an improvement to bioavailability. Now, some 
they, there's this this uh, segment in the in the protocol at the bottom that says that there's some research that says that the, the improvement you get for the elderly is only like 25%. Okay, first of all, that's still something. Secondly, there's this other paper that says the improvement you get is two and a half times more absorption. So I don't know which one is true. I know if they thought that it wasn't as much as I thought it was, they could have just given it with a meal. Instead, they're hiding behind sort of the FDA label and uh, other things that just don't don't sound reasonable to me. And they're more than happy to contravene for fluoxamine. So, yeah, this is this is really frustrating how the dosing was done. And again, no good explanation coming. And potentially real people put at real risk for unclear reasons is, is not okay. Ah, the next one, plasma concentration below known effective value. This one, I think since they were roughly in line with the FLCC protocol for at least the lower weights, I think this is okay, except for the old issues we just talked about, right? About taking with a meal and the higher BMI people. But there's this the study that, that kind of showed uh, that you kind of need a specific kind of critical mass of ivermectin use basically to have a result. And, and that they modeled, the, the authors modeled that you didn't reach that. I'll mention something here, actually, because it's, it's kind of interesting. The authors include this guy, Craig something. I don't remember his, his last name. And I'm not even sure if his first name is Craig. From Australia, from Monash University. So Monash University is important because the, the original work on ivermectin working in vitro for COVID was done in that university by Kylie Wagstaff and her, her team. This guy came out of the same university and almost immediately started putting out material that said that that's garbage and you can't, you the, the whole meme about we can't reach the effective plasma concentration came out of that group. So this paper here has an author who was involved in saying, even if you give a high dose, you can't reach the effective plasma concentration. So far, so good, right? People can have their opinions. Why the hell did they give they start the trial with a single dose, which had zero chance of reaching that, that level, right? Don't you want to give a high dose to prove your point? Like, give a high dose, show that it doesn't reach, that it doesn't do anything, and, you know, go back to Australia and give Kylie Wax out the middle finger. Instead, you start with a low dose, and then you, you, you move it up, but, like, in a very kind of stingy way and kind of sort of and leave people uncovered. Et cetera, et cetera. Why? Ivermectin, as far as we know, we, there might be disagreements about efficacy. I get that. There are no serious disagreements about safety. There's people like mumbling about safety, but there's no, you know, there's cases reported that somebody took like a hundred times the effective dose as a way to commit suicide. And she walked out of the hospital four days later with no lasting effects. I mean, it's really hard to harm yourself with this drug. And everybody's being like hyper cautious about like the precise amounts. I, I get it, right? Of course, medication is medication. You got to be cautious. But like when people are dying and, and you got good indication and a good safety record, I don't know. Again, like why underdose when your whole argument is that even a high dose won't reach the plasma concentration, then, you know, try it. Anyway, otherwise, though, if, if they had dosed as they said they had dosed, especially with a meal, I don't think this would have been an issue. It's an issue because of, of the caveats they, they put on the dosing. Next up, primary outcome, easy to game. Selected after Ivermectin one dose arm. Correct. So they initially said they would report separately this is a whole other story. And I'm realizing, actually, as I'm talking, how much material I've observed on this trial and how much material there is to talk about. And it's probably not even half of it. They changed the outcome of the trial from uh, over 12 hours observation to over six hours observation. Okay. And then they have some explanation about like, well, this was the peak of the gamma wave and it was a mess. It was like, you know, people being hospitalized in corridors and like whatever. Okay. Well, that's a problem, right? You don't really want to take data from a health system that is in panic, right? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing sort of Italy, early COVID. And what you would expect is that the ER numbers would look 
random. And they do. If you look just at the ER observation numbers, they are in the paper. They look like inverse of everything else on the paper, right? So the ivermectin apparently makes you do worse in terms of ER observation. I, I don't know that that's, that makes any sense. And, and then hospitalization does better. So like what you get observed longer in the ER, but you somehow magically are less likely to go to the hospital. This looks like statistical noise to me. And really, just think about it, right? This is a health system collapsing. People are getting hit by the gamma variant, the deadliest variants we've ever seen. These are the worst days of the pandemic in Brazil. They're setting up field stations everywhere. People are just rolling in to sick. Are we saying that like the doctors would follow up on every patient in a timely fashion, that somebody was not left in a waiting room for like eight hours instead of four? Give me a break. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is not serious, right? Uh, and yet, what they did is they had them, I believe, as separate endpoints, and they merged them. They said, we'll report on ER observation over six hours or hospitalization, as if it's kind of like equivalent as well. So they reduced the number of hours that you have to be observed to count as, you know, quote-unquote hospitalized, basically. Like, over 12 hours, it was originally, they made it over six hours. Their explanation made little sense. And again, these ER field stations that they were working with Fair enough, but Brazil is in chaos. But the whole point of an RCT is there's a stable background here to, to work with, right? Not that it's changing rapidly as you are undergoing your trial. So I, I don't know what to make of it. I wish they had reported at least their originals and their new one so we can see. Changing a primary endpoint in the middle of the trial is not a good thing. It's it's considered uh, a really bad thing. If you hear Helfner uh, and those guys, they constantly rag on trials for violating their pre-registration. This trial, I'm having trouble finding anything that they did do according to their pre-registration at this point. Like they they, they changed primary endpoints, secondary endpoints, subgroups uh, has been shifted. Like limits, like everything keeps keeps changing. Like inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria. <laughs> like okay, all right. I mean, at this point, and this is the problem. You kind of have to trust the researchers, right? And the whole point of an RCT is that you don't have to trust the researchers. So we're having like weird inversions happening with this trial. And, and again, I don't know what to make of it, but I, I, I really don't like what I'm seeing. Next one, I think, is the good point, but probably uh, tangential. So they said they included contraindicated chronic kidney disease patients. And indeed, ivermectin is contraindicated for kidney disease. At least in, in some places, I, I wasn't able to track sort of the, 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 you know, if it was on the label or not. And therefore, you first of all, you put these people at risk theoretically. But honestly, this looks like a, an honest mistake. What I've seen is that that contraindication is not really that serious either anyway. So I, I doubt anybody was actually harmed by that. But it does kind of speak maybe to a lack of attention to detail, which is important. But I, I, again, I don't think that this criticism will take down the trial. Antigen test requirement is, is fascinating. So when they said, you know, you're COVID positive, you can be added to the trial, they didn't do a PCR test. They did a, like a rapid test, basically, if I'm understanding this correctly. Rapid tests have a, a false positive degree, right? So are we adjusting the expected statistical power of the trial for the number of false positives that we're going to induct in the trial? No, that's a problem because... The number we talked about before, 681, was precisely set to have a certain event rate to observe a certain kind of effect with a certain amount of power. When your variables are moving around, and we're not talking now about the gamma variant and the ER observation and all that stuff, but whether you're using a PCR or an antigen test to uh, induct somebody into trial, all of that should be reducing your confidence in your, in your numbers. And yet that did not seem to have happened. They don't provide time from onset analysis for mortality or hospitalization, only the combined measure. 
Yes, and again, they really should have done that. There's per protocol and modified intentional to treat mortality and hospitalization results missing. Health nerds saw fit to say like, well, you know, there are some mortality numbers in the appendix. Yeah, but there's not the full analysis like they did for fluvoxamine, right? Again, like there's a matter of parity here as well. And really, the, the office in a in a tricky situation because in a way, having all these papers is an advantage if you want to obscure something because there's too many pieces of the puzzle to put together. But in another way, there's a lot of data and taking through different snapshots of time that can be used to sort of infer what happened in the trial and sort of see differences in treatment, differences in approach, and make inferences about why those differences are, are there. And, and and this is actually interesting how certain things were provided for fluoxamine but not for ivermectin or, or vice versa. Same for outcomes. Many outcomes specified for the trial in the protocol appear to be missing. They had a co-primary endpoint of mortality, COVID-19 mortality, which they didn't report on, on the all-cause, apparently. And a bunch of other ones, you know, why? Why are these things missing? It's it's like they had seven months to do it. Surely. There's no there's no explanation. The the the, the age information that they're missing for some patients, important because it's an inclusion criterion and a randomization criterion, actually. So if you don't know the age, then what's the deal? Again, we can maybe hypothesize that they knew roughly but not precisely. Again, this has to be discussed. This is not up to me to explain what they what they did. The next one is mid-trial protocol changes, many, many changes uh, throughout the protocol. I kind of get it because it's an adaptive trial, but only if you're a committee that makes sure that these things are unbiased is independent, and it wasn't. So again, this comes back into our field of vision because we don't trust the committee, and, and nobody really should. I mean, this, it's not a matter of like liking people or not liking people. They just were not independent flat out, which, by the way, is also a false claim in their papers. They say that the SMC was independent. And I don't know of a definition of independent that would make that committee look independent. I'm sorry. Like, maybe you say they're honest or they're good people or they have, like, a good record. I could grant you all these things. But the independence thing is, is there for a reason, right? What is it? The, the, the wife of the Caesar has to not only be honest, but appear honest. And I have my doubts about whether this committee was honest or not or whatever, but maybe we could say like, okay, maybe I'm being paranoid. But what we do know is that it does not meet the definitions of independence, of uh, impartiality that we want in these trials in order to not have to have these conversations. And a specific criteria actually that were modified, like late in the protocol, they started adding the criterion fever over 38 degrees Celsius at baseline. 38 degrees is barely a fever, right? Like, uh, again, I don't know if you guys speak Celsius. I think I'm at an advantage here. 36.6 is your baseline temperature, right? 38 is like a little bit above. It's not, you have a fever, but it's a low fever. So if that's an inclusion criterion, that means that like somebody who is young has a, a bit of a fever they get added to this trial who is supposed to be for advanced patients, but only towards the end, right? And this matters because remember all the fuckery that happened early on. And again, it doesn't have to be intentional, but all of this mess has now cleaned out. And now you're adding patients that very well could be baseline healthy, right? So what does that mean? That means that you are watering down the statistical power of your results. If you get patients in that are going to be fine anyway, then any drug that does work is going to have less opportunity to show it. This is why adding, you know, having a fever is now a criterion for being added to a trial on, like, you know, severely ill patients with comorbidities, like, you know, is odd, you know. Alex, can I ask yeah, you a question? Yep. Um, so, uh, so not all these participants, like, jumped in at the same time or exited the trial for computations at the same time, if I understand what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a rolling trial. It happened from the high dose. Well, the whole let's say the whole trial started in uh, January fifteenth, twenty for real, and it ended in August five. And they have multiple protocol changes in the middle. 
Okay. Uh, okay. Wow. Okay. So um, something that I found in. Um, but, uh, I'll, I'll give you one thing that will that will that will tickle you even better. Vaccines went from an exclusion criterion to an inclusion criterion partially, uh, only 14 days before became an inclusion criterion. They shifted their their vaccines themselves as a, as a, as a uh, criterion have shifted around throughout the trial. It's, it's 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 and they don't mention anything. There's no subgroups. Nothing. Okay. So different arms were started and ended at different periods of time. Correct. Is there any place in the study where they do a uh, risk adjustment for, um, you know, different risks on different days, right? Because the the risk curve should look wildly different in January than it does in April. I, I have not seen that. If anybody can uh, has looked it up, uh, let let us know because I, I have myself have not seen that adjustment. Just to mention, I, I, I did a readjustment for for an uh, Israeli study, and I found that that risk adjustment had a factor of minimum 1.9. That's not small at all. Right, right. I'll show you something because I think you'll you'll get it. Just give me one minute. I've, I've posted basically my hint, hint, nudge, nudge explanation for all, all this mess. Can you see there's a tweet that must have been added not to the space? There's one with four four charts. It's very striking. Uh, it will be added, I guess, shortly. These four charts show the enrollment pace, which shows the discontinuity I'm talking about in Evermectin High. It shows the deaths in that particular state in Brazil, shows the cases in that particular state in Brazil, and it shows for the gamma variant, but basically the weekly deaths in Brazil and how the gamma variant is dominating and pulling up the weekly deaths in Brazil. According to this chart, it went from like something like, I don't know, 5,000-ish to like close to 20,000 at the peak weekly, just per week for Brazil as a whole, right? It's, it's, we're talking about like a, a massive jump in mortality happening right in the middle uh, of the trial. I've never used Twitter spaces before. So or- at the, if you have the, the bar with the, with the space, if you can open it up so you can see everybody at the top of that list, there are some tweets that are uh, attached. And I think the first one uh, is one with four diagrams that I have posted. But anyway, the, the point is that what you're saying is, is blatantly true. The CFR moved all over the place throughout the trial. I guess their explanation for this would be that they are not actually comparing the drugs to each other, right? They're comparing everybody to placebo, and the placebo was nominally concurrent, even though I've, I'm pretty sure it wasn't, that they're saying it was. But yeah, this kind of adjustment would be really fun to, to do. Yes, yeah, so the next the next point that they're making is what I said before: the vaccine status is unclear. Others, uh, some places they say they will exclude you for uh, having been vaccinated. Other places they say they will include you if you've been vaccinated up to fourteen days prior. No, no, sorry. The early protocol said the vaccination was an inclusion criterion, and then there was like an exclusion criterion. And excluding vaccinated patients is fascinating in another way too, because you would expect, especially right after the gamma wave, where everybody's freaking out, the most at-risk patients to go get vaccinated. Right. So the makeup of the trial, remember, this is early 2021, right? This is when the the whole mess with Andrew Hill happens. This is when the vaccines are released. There's a a lot of things happening between January and August 2021 in the pandemic. Beyond the gamma stuff that's happening specifically in Brazil, there's a ton of stuff happening in the background, both politically and, and in terms of vaccine availability. So if you're excluding people that have taken the vaccine, you don't have to change the exclusion criterion. That the criterion itself is changing your background population as you go, because, again, you would expect the most at-risk people to have gotten vaccinated gradually through the trial, right? Like, so, so, so your ability to get at-risk patients is decreasing. In fact, I've actually shown 
that the early part of the trial, they had a, a bit over 50%, I believe 53% acceptance rate of patients that they were evaluating. So for every two patients they were evaluating, they were admitting into the trial approximately one. For the latter half of the study, I've shown that this plummets to about a quarter. So for every four patients they are evaluating, they're adding one to the trial. Again, why this change? Not explained, but the, the criteria are shifting and also a bunch of people are getting vaccinated. Uh, so you might, uh, you might start to, to form a picture. Uh, next, late change in results from previously released data. I think this one is actually not an issue. So Aria Meta says that, you know, they talked in August about a certain number of results. They're talking now about a certain other number of results. But this has been clarified that they had not finished their 28-day follow-up when they spoke in August, which makes sense because they closed admissions on August 6th. So they could not fully evaluate all the events. And you would expect that some more events would have added up. Now, this doesn't talk about the mortality and continuities today, table two and all that stuff that has been stealth edited, but the, the discontinuity with the original results, I think maybe I'm not seeing something, but I'm not, I'm unconvinced. Statistical analysis plan dated after trial start. This is another one I picked up. Their statistical analysis plan is dated March 26. They started adding patients on March 23. Also, that plan is not fully signed by everybody that has to sign it until April 8th. Does that mean that they were doing different things? You know, I'm told that this is kind of common, but again, we're looking at a situation here where the DSMC is not independent, et cetera, et cetera. You know, can we preclude that they looked at the data as it was rolling in and made some decisions? I sure hope not, but, you know, hope is not a strategy. Uh, again, this is why you sign things and you file things and you pre-register things. And this is supposed to be the gold standard trial and 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 dates are shifting all over the shop, right? Like it's, it's frustrating. We talked about the prior protocol placebo results being very different. Um, oh, yeah, no, no, this is a particular feature of that. So if you look in this appendix, figure S2, they have a different, like they have the intention to treat cohort, the uh, modified intention to treat, and the per placebo. The cohort that did three days per placebo did better than every other arm on every other cohort. So... It did better than other placebos, like a lot. It even did better than ivermectin on the other arms, right? But on that particular arm, because it's per protocol, ivermectin also does better, so it doesn't flip. But um, it does just spectacularly well. And you're like, okay, what's the deal? Like, why is per protocol placebo doing super well? Now, could it be that certain people died in that group uh, before they completed their, their, their treatment and therefore are counted out of the placebo group as not per protocol and therefore that group looks synthetically better? I don't know. Things that should have been explained. As it looks like right now, there's like this massive mystery around why does the per protocol placebo look better than everything else, like just substantially better. Okay, what was in that placebo and can I have it? The imputation protocol violation, again, I'm not sure if it meets their definition. I, I'd need somebody who understands this stuff. Matthew, you're probably the right person. But they state that the imputation is going to be used for numbers that have uh, certain statistical analyses to be done on them, whatever. But long story short, they state an upper limit of imputation that they, is going to be done that is 20% missing data to fill in. And they used it to fill in on at least one of their tables to fill in the time from onset. But time from onset, they're missing 23% of the data. So it, it's missing more than the maximum that they would accept to fill in statistically. And they do say they've done it. The one part I'm not sure is if it's used on that table in the way that they said it was going to be used in the statistical analysis plan, whether there's like some leeway there. But I, I, I like filling in 23% of your data points statistically sounds dodgy to begin with. Having said that you won't do it for more than 20%, 
and doing it for 23, I don't know. At the very least, sounds like there was chaos on the streets, which we kind of know there was uh, because of the other parts of the story. And they tried to cover it up here somehow. Not good. Again, I give the slight doubt that maybe the way that they said they were using mutation, the way they use it are slightly different, so the limitation doesn't apply. But I'm doubtful that that's true. I'm just sort of noting it. The next one is, uh, I believe, a typo that was fixed, again, with no notification that it was fixed, but whatever. Conflicting adverse event counts. This is, I think there's a lot more to be done here that I, I haven't jumped into that a lot. And then we move on to things like conflicts of interest, right? So I'm just going to read a, a bunch of this uh, at once and going to talk about it. So there's possibly the largest financial conflict of interest of any child to date. Disclosed conflicts include Pfizer, Merck, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Australian government, Rainwater, Fast Grants, Medicines Development for Global Health, NovaQuest, Regeneron, AstraZeneca, Daiichi, Sankyo, Commonwealth Science Research Organization, and Card Research. Unitate is a sponsor, at least if you look at the website. Analysis done by a company that receives payment from and works closely with Pfizer, that's Cytel. Co-principal investigation works for Cytel and the Gates Foundation, that is Mills. The Gates Foundation is founding partner of Gavi, which took out Google ads, telling people not to use ivermectin. I, I don't think... Well, there's a significant doubt how Bill Gates feels about ivermectin. Associated with MMS Holdings and Sartara is the same. They're the same kind of situation where they are companies whose mission includes helping pharmaceutical companies get approval and designing scientific studies that help them get approval. Now, to me, this is important not because they're helping pharmaceutical companies, but because they're indicating that they know what they're doing. These people are experts. There's several people in this trial that know a lot about running clinical trials, right? So when we're looking at sophisticated behaviors about sort of, you know, causing glitches in algorithms and shifting arms and whatever, you could say like, dude, like, what are these guys like, you know, geniuses? Apparently, yes. Like, these are the kinds of people that work for the biggest pharmaceuticals and do the kinds of trials that we know have a higher likelihood of getting approved. Like there's this thing called the funding effect where trials that have been run by pharma are just statistically more likely to get approved than trials that have not been run by pharma. And, and you know, that why would that be? Maybe they're really good at designing trials. Maybe these are the people that know all the ins and outs and maybe they're using them here for the opposite purpose. Maybe, maybe not. It would be good if the DSMC was independent so we can have some sort of assurance, but that was not done. So now we have all these doubts. Then they talk about the gamma variant, which shows very different characteristics. And again, we've seen this problem in many different ways. We've seen the mortality jump in the in the trial. We've seen the CFR jumping in the region. We see the gamma variant taking over. We know from the gamma variant that is, I think the, the, the best estimate I saw is like, it's 50% more likely to kill you, basically, right? Like, it's not a little bit, it's a lot. In fact, it probably was too aggressive. And that's why it got eventually replaced by Delta. But it's, it's the worst variant we've ever seen. And yeah, this changing in the middle of your trial... Uh, and you not taking that into account does not look very good. Single dose arm results missing. Yep. Well, that's just what's happening. Single dose arm results missing. They haven't given us that data. Uh, we need that data to fill in the rest of the story. We can make some guesses, but it's it's not good for them to collect data, to get people to sacrifice themselves for science and to not even put it out. Sorry, not good. Especially when, you know, there's a doubt whether, well, the certainty that you, you recruited people into that arm when you had declared your intention to shift that arm. So the, the least you can do is release the data. Okay, this is kind of funky, actually. Anomalous results from the same region. There's, apparently, the Molnupiravir trials did significantly better in Brazil in that region at that time, right? And, and if you look at the Molnupiravir results, they're, they're 
predominantly like propelled to significance by those results by specifically from Brazil from that region at that time. What that means, nobody knows, but it's kind of funky. What's also funky is that remember this guy Christian Thorold that we talk about, who is like Mill's sort of soulmate and chairman of the uh, data and safety monitoring committee? Even out of nowhere shows up, having written a paper with Gideon Meyerowitz Katz, Kyle Sheldrick, Christian Thorland, Sonal Singh, another guy from the from the same DSMC, who is also co-authored many papers with Mills, 26, I believe, and the fifth member of the group, because uh, you know the Beatles always have to have the fifth Beatle, Andrew Hill. How the hell you got two people from this group that are like, you know, dedicated to finding fraud in American trials, whatever, you know, my feelings are known, but okay, well, sure, they can write a paper. Two people from the Together Data and Safety Monitoring Committee, these people haven't collaborated before, to my knowledge, and Andrew Hill, right, showing up together to write a paper arguing against Molnupiravir. What? This is not how papers look normally. Like, you have an academic group, maybe there's a, like a supervisor, a few students, or whatever. Like, you don't have people from like, Five countries who all have entered the radar of proponents of early treatment for very different reasons. Uh, and of all of them, Andrew Hill, I think, is like by far, it's beyond doubt that he has engaged in academic misconduct. Writing a paper arguing against Molnupiravir, I, I, this I don't even know. Like, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know how these people met, how this paper, why they chose Molnupiravir. It, it all is confusing. So I don't, I don't want to say anything specific. I have some thoughts, but uh, it's, it's, it's all low probability events. Uh, the, the, this kind of completely throws me off. They mentioned this being designed by Cytel. Again, we mentioned Cytel before and how they are connected. Placebo unspecified. I don't think it's unspecified. They did mention vitamin C, I believe, in the in the hydroxychloroquine trials, which is another problem, uh, but not. Uh, everything I've seen about uh, January 21 onwards is talk. So I don't know how they see that, but I don't I don't think placebo is specified. Yeah, this is the thing about the, the published protocols, and I don't know where Ariamet I got the 1B protocol. I suspect it is a failed kind of candidate protocol, basically. Th- th- there are many, many changes throughout the trial, uh, that, that's for sure. But uh, I don't know that particular issue uh, with the published protocols. It would be very good if we had the, like Avi Meta told us the story of, of where this came from. The last one is that uh, Bayesian probability of superiority. Ah, this is a new one that they've added, which is one of mine. Bayesian probability of superiority hidden in appendix. So the Bayesian probability of superiority figure featured in the main paper for fluvoxamine, metformin, hydroxychloroquine was hidden in the appendix for ivermectin. Patients 50 years old were assigned, this is separate, um, that there's um, um, yeah, separate, smaller issues, or, or not smaller, really. If we don't have the data, we don't know how much it affected the results. We're moved to different subgroups. There was the weirdness around greater efficacy being seen for older patients than younger patients. Though, honestly, I don't know. I, I don't know why that was. Anyway, and then there's like a bunch of other comments that are done prior that I'm not going to go into because we've just spent enough time already. But yeah, so that's the paper. Woof! Oh my God! All right, all right. I'm ready to to stand down. If anybody wants to raise their hands to say hello and ask any questions, I, I think Twitter is doing that thing, by the way, where it's not showing me requests. Oh, Jared. Hello, Jared. Let me approve your request. I'd love to hear your thoughts. To say this has been great. Um, very much enjoyed the analysis. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm, I'm, as I was talking, I'm realizing I've, I've, I've probably dug into this a little bit more than I <laughs> realized. Yeah. I am, uh, I'm actually a trial candidate for the BEAT-MS trial. Um, I've been studying or reading medical research for years now about multiple sclerosis, and it's 
I'm a computer scientist, so it was really satisfying to hear another computer scientist do a deep dive. Yeah, no, it's um, it's fascinating that if if what I think happened happened in this trial, it would have been a issue around algorithmic sort of you know trying to satisfy preset constraints mm. in the in the face of adversity, where adversity is is arms sort of showing up and disappearing, uh, and, and trying to keep consistency. I feel like that's a charitable analysis, and uh, I'm happy to hear somebody be so charitable. I, I I'm not look. My less charitable interpretation is that this was done on purpose. That it happened, it happened. That uh, why it happened, I'm 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 restra- refraining because I'm not a telepath. And honestly, I consider uh, incompetence to be a worse situation than malice. Uh, people will, will have heard me say because uh, you can you can uh, negotiate with the malicious. You cannot negotiate with the incompetent. So it's ca- calling them incompetent. And if this happens to you and it's not on purpose, it's 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 extreme incompetence calling incompetent is not a is, is not a I, I don't necessarily see it as strictly charitable um but um whatever it is i just like to talk about the things i know and not the things i don't know i, I i'm pretty certain that after it did happen a number of things were tweaked to make the paper look a lot better right like mm-hmm. to hide what happened i don't mm-hmm. know that what happened happened on purpose again i have many many questions that i've articulated here but I, I could see a world in which maybe this was a fuck up that happened completely accidentally, and then things were airbrushed to make it look like it didn't happen. But the there's just too many too many uh, elements uh, gone awry, and they fit together under this this story. So it's it's just too it's just too clear. Agreed, and thank you, of course, for the analysis. At least this will be recorded uh, for for posterity. Okay, so if um, nobody has any particular topics to bring up, uh, I, I usually hear... Um, hey, Tom. Hi. Uh, I, I'm pretty busy. I've been listening, and, uh, and I'm full of awe and wonderment for, for your analysis. That's all I've got to say. Yeah, I, I may have gone a little bit OCD on this and lost a couple of nights of sleep. Um, just... <laughs> again, uh, I'm, I'm having having gone so deep, I'm... I've developed like a fondness for the design, but I'm also, it also looks like the people who were critical to this design were also critical in compromising it. And that's just sad. You know, if that's what happened, it's just, it's just depressing that, 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 that this design is really, you know, in principle, how trials should be happening. I, I love it. It's, it's, it's great. Um, but there should be the safeguards around it to make sure that it is unimpeachable. And, and, and this was, yeah, impeachable. Anyway, thanks. So, yeah, basically, um, unless anybody else has any questions, I'm sure I hear often, like, after the fact, a lot of people sending me comments. So I'd love to, you know, continue the conversation, send me stuff. I'm uh, The reason I'm doing this in part is because I want to stir the collective intelligence to to point me to things. Somebody had said that, you know, isn't it commenting about this stuff in public, giving, you know, the potential enemy, you know, your playbook? You're just showing him, showing them all your cards. And that is true, of course, uh, assuming there's somebody who's motivated to make the paper look good, knowing all the issues gives them some ability to maneuver. However, my counterargument was that without talking in public, I would have no concerns. My issues are issues because I've talked in public, I've talked to people, I've connected, I've, I've seen Aviameta gather, I've seen so many people just put together different pieces. And then through interaction, I've met people, we've, we've come together, started to analyze stuff, and sort of 
escalated our understanding and different you know we've chased various you know uh dead ends uh that you know looked like issues but actually weren't issues i mentioned a few of them here so this is something that lives and dies in public i understand the potential for it to you know have some negative effects i suppose though i'm not much for a subterfuge but even if i were i think it's it's obvious that this work is exciting because it's work that is done by many. It's different people throwing different fragments of understanding into the ring and sort of, you know, it coming together from ideas that maybe not all of us had to begin with. Like, you know, I, I may throw in something and it might not be correct with somebody else or something in there. And it's like, ah, yes, it's a, it's a collaboration. So I think we just have to do it in public. Uh, there, there, I, don't, I don't see how else we, we, we can do private stuff, but yeah it's not going to be as as, as powerful. Uh, hey, Jared, I see a hand up. Uh, hey, I just wanted to note that uh, I'm a big fan of uh, epistemology in general. Um, the idea of obscuring your tactics in order to defeat your opponent, that is not how science works at all. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, uh, having these discussions in public and the analysis and the tools of the analysis critiqued is exactly what we're here for. Thank you for doing it. I appreciate it. I think if I'm being charitable to the people who were saying that, they have concluded that this is not how science is done, right? They have concluded that there is something extremely shady going on, and therefore that now we are not in a scientific realm, we're in a political realm, right? That's why they they, they, they say this. And I see where they're coming. It's not that I don't see where they're coming from. I'm just saying, like, I don't have a choice because this, this analysis is not all mine. A lot of people who are here who I acknowledge in my posts as much as I can, but really I can't because there's just so many people who have added to this analysis. Uh, we've all done it in public. And I think this is a sign of the future. I think the future looks more like this and less like that. So whatever the downsides, I think we're going to have to mitigate them because I don't think we can avoid. Uh, I don't think there's a better way to do it than well. I'm sure there's better ways, but not the, the in public part is 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 definitely part of the of the better way. So uh, it is what it is. And thank you all for listening in. I kind of find it hard to believe that you've heard me ramble about a scientific study for over um, two hours. But, you know, you did it to yourself. So uh, (laughs) I've got nobody else to blame. Uh, All right. Cool. Thanks. Alex, this is Mary. Hey. Hey, uh, if I can just give a quick comment. Go for uh, it. And I put a little... little Mary is one of these people that, that, that has helped a ton in understanding, and she knows what she's talking about, so it helps. A, a little bit. Um, I'm a long time... I have a, a degree in statistics, and I've worked as a pharmaceutical medical writer, uh, primarily is through contract for a few different uh, large pharma companies, and I've done regulatory report writing and submissions and journal writing. So just have a little different take currently in a very disillusioned state given all this i really must admit <laughs> um really kind of having a hard time seeing how things has has evolved in this discussion of science and public and everything and kind of coming from the enemy side i guess if you will um kind of walking that fine line but i just one one thing i guess is important for me to point out i feel like is that the this whole thing about what analyses or endpoints were quote-unquote planned and quote-unquote hidden or need to be disclosed or being manipulated or being avoided the primary and all be all of journal publications is marketing i mean just just that's the end of the story that that's the whole whole raison d'etre um and all all those plan endpoints the the uh, requirement and the focus for those is the regulatory reporting and they will be done completely and transparently and that is a requirement but it is legal 
um, and expected that a subset will be presented in a, in a paper like this. So um, be that as it may, of course, you'd rather have the transparency, but that is sort of a legitimate difference, I, I think, in, in my standpoint. I hear you, right? And and if they had changed like one or two of them, it'll be fine. The, the problem is that they present, I believe, seven. Two of them have their boundary shifted. Three of them are as planned, and two of them were not planned and added. And there's like another two or three that were planned and not added. So it's we're not looking at like them like adding a few or if if they added first of all just adding is not a problem to me right like it's give us more data that's fine uh sure it's not as you know gold standard as like having pre-declared it but i'll take more than rather than less that's cool you know that most of the subgroups you're seeing are, are are somehow suspect it's the sheer volume i guess of the of the questions around the subgroups that i, I find concerning right yeah oh, and i was just kind of doing that as more of a bigger picture issue. I agree sure. with you some of this as we work through the SAP, but just, just kind of in a larger and a meta sense or whatever, what what is the goal and focus of an SAP and of a regulatory requirement reporting? And what is the goal and focus in relation to that documentation for a marketing paper? Just, just kind of in the big picture. Yeah. And, I, and I mean, uh, sure. But, you know, uh, I understand that this is how it's perceived from maybe, you know, from a pharmaceutical company that does this. But, like, this is still s- supposed to be science. And this is still supposed to be a journal paper that, you know, has some constraints around it in terms of the scientific process, right? You don't just get to, like, give your pictorial uh, <laughs> representation of what you would want the results to be or whatever. Like, they have to be constrained somehow. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I, I get it, but like this is kind of the problem. I'm not saying this is unique to this paper. I'm just saying that even if it's not unique, these are problems. You know, actually, you know what? I'll say something more. I'm starting to get the picture that trials were always a little bit soft, right? Like there's oh, like trials always have a number of gremlins, maybe not this number of gremlins, but some number of gremlins. Some things have gone like this. You know, after all, you're interacting with the real world. Stuff happens. You can never get this like, you know, platonic ideal of statistical perfection. You miss data. You Like all these things happen. I get it. And maybe some people after the fact will airbrush a little bit to make things look a little bit better, to keep a pretense, whatever you want to call it. Cool. The problem we have in this pandemic is that a certain medication had a bunch of positive looking trials and they got slaughtered, right? Like any divergence from the absolute perfection was was treated as evidence of fraud. Uh, people, you know, like got hunted down effectively, like, you know, and, and then what, what happened with that, all of these fragments of like concerns or questions got bundled up to call the entire field fraudulent. We're talking about 750 plus researchers being called, you know, fraudsters by implication for having contributed to this research because, you know, some people started like nitpicking through every paper. Some of them are bad, right? And that's, I I fully support them in finding bad papers. I think, you know, whatever the motivation doesn't really matter. Bad science should be weeded out. But some papers, there were questions and they were not treated as questions. They were treated as answers. And, you know, the the verdict was clear. And and, and now we have this, this heightened standard. Right. Of, of uh, like, OK, well, this is how we're working now, I guess. Right. And is this going to be bad for everybody? Are we going to have this problem for like any medication that comes out? Quite likely. But, uh, you know, maybe we should always have had that standard or maybe we should, you know, there should be a, a standard of charitability for everybody. My main concern throughout the pandemic, my big flag is we've got to have the same standards. I, I kind of don't care what the standards even are. I mean, I care to some degree, but but I, I I'm very flexible. Like I can I can accept all sorts of different standards so long as they're the same. The thing that up with which I will not put 
is having one set of standards for the one side, right? Like saying like, oh, you're a fraudster because this or that or whatever. And on the other side, it's all like, well, you know, the, the, of course they couldn't do everything. Uh, I can understand the one and I can understand the other. What I don't understand is the unequal application of, of, of those rationales, if that makes sense. Oh, I fully agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then, then I guess the other thing I just kind of point out again, kind of in the bigger picture that I don't know if everyone knows any, uh, I believe it's, it's a law or at least a, a working FDA principle, any health information released direct to consumer, like uh, package labels that are, there's a patient friendly version and a healthcare provider friendly version. If you go to look up any drug, there's the two separate versions, vaccines, anything. The patient-friendly, direct-to-consumer version has to be written in, I think it's vocabulary for 6th to 8th grade English. Extremely watered down, extremely simple, extremely lay language, I guess, if you will. Um, so things like in a, in a um, the provider version would say if patient is sterile, do X or don't do X or may be included or excluded. In the patient-friendly version, it would say if you can't get pregnant tell your doctor or if you can't get pregnant this applies or this doesn't apply so it's that that translated it's that watered down simplified really general lay language and so that's the kind of thing and and it's something i'm kind of becoming aware of that this increased transparency these pfizer data dumps these FOIA releases and things i'm all for it but things like that things like these journal articles without the um, the kind of translation and that watering down, if you will, unfortunately. And I know I'm not speaking to this audience. Clearly, this audience is, is way educated above 6th to 8th grade, but that's just something else to be aware of. And it, it, it is a different audience and a different level of communication and of assumptions and of uh, industry jargon and, and things like that. And I think that might be something that needs to be explored more is, is the simplified and it's kind of straddling all these different worlds and all these different uh, audiences and things and trying to get things across to everybody the best way they, they're just a journal paper and for instance the the fda reports and the pfizer things they were written for industry audiences they weren't written for general audiences and i think that's as much as the increased transparency and in the science and public and things that we're talking about are, are a plus going forward i think it is causing some confusion so um that's just something else I've been observing. As yeah, well. the um, you know, like I, I, I hear you, right? The, 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 there's an issue, maybe if I can try to articulate what I think you're saying, and you can correct me if I'm understanding it or not. You know, there's a lot of scary language, right, in a lot of these things that if you don't know what you're talking about or you're you're reading, you might freak out. Whereas, like, either a, a, an expert would like not freak out, or they're already freaked out anyway. Baseline, so this is not freaking them out significantly more. They kind of know that this kind of risk is there, et cetera, et cetera and they can make sort of probability-based uh, decisions on life. And and you know, the lay audience might want to hear a yes or no. They might not want to hear you know a a nuanced sort of thing with like various you know things about strokes and heart attacks thrown in there for good measure. When I see all of these things around how these these papers are treated how they're f- fleshed through how i don't know if this is true but this is what we heard that you know to get this paper retracted we have to find the right 170 words to write to the journal within a certain number of weeks without access to the data 
right? Like when all these artificial hurdles that have absolutely no reason to be there are there, right? When 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 you see things just being promoted or suppressed based on the result of the paper, which should never ever be the the reason. It's either a good paper or not. You know, whether you like the result or not doesn't matter. You know, you see basically all of these scientific institutions, and you know, I may not be a biologist, but I I know academia from from my my PhD era, and I know what science is supposed to be. And, you know, all of these different things that are supposed to be safeguarding science have been sort of trimmed down to be sort of shells of their former selves, right? So what what other option do we have, right? The reason I called, you know, my blog, Do Your Own Research, and the space on occasion has that name, is because, you know what, like, yes, it would have been nice if we had experts who treated their their, their duty with the, the sacred care that it demands, and people could trust them and say, yeah, you know what, I don't know everything, and maybe I don't need to know everything. I, I, I trust these guys, and they're going to figure it out for me, right? When When that trust has been betrayed over and over and over and over again, Sadly, we're we're back to having to deal with raw reality. Our abstraction layer has failed us. And the way I articulate this is like, we trusted them, they failed us, it's over. It would be nice if we could have a class of experts that was tasked with, you know, understanding this messy reality and translating it to us for like the common man in a way that we could expect would be honest and impartial and all that. But that's not happening. So we've got to go back to the, you know, the ground level of like, all right, we're going to start to start parsing through the data. Did you offset your placebo or not? That kind of stuff. Because uh, you know it would be nice, but but, but like, I, I don't I don't see how we can continue to apply trust to these folks uh, without uh, them having to 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 earn it at some point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I think more people, fewer things are being taken for granted, or there's a hunger now. We've we've the the door has been cracked open to right. promise of data and that kind of thing. Whereas before, there was never any individual data release. There was never any of these um, case report forms that the patient data worksheets that are available for right. the study. All the all the protocol versions, all the SAP versions, all that. And now they're okay, we've got that. Now what? Now give us the individual data. Now give us that. Now give us that. Now give us that. And again, like the transparency is good, but it's kind of a slippery slope, I guess, if you will, or whatever, that before it was accepted, you just got the paper and you got whatever endpoints they packaged and whatever was put out and I guess that leads to, well, we should have been questioning, you know, 10 years ago and, you know, the papers I wrote and, and that kind of thing. And I guess maybe we'll get there. I guess I'll say maybe there will be more transparency and this, this cracking open the door to more layers and more visibility. But I, I guess maybe- I think the, um, the real anger from people, and, and I feel it too, and I don't even care if I reckon works or not on, on some level, right? Like, I, I just want the truth. And, and, and I care much more about the violations of science that, than, than anything else. But, um, you know, it, it ticks me off that let's call them abstractions, let's call them softenings, let's call them airbrushing, call it whatever you want. If we're going to allow them, we have to allow them for everybody, right? You can't do this for Pfizer. And then when, you know, old, old Carvalho comes in, like waltzing in and saying American works with a paper that was probably sloppy, right? Like really sloppy. You fucking crucify the man like it's it's like that's the problem the 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 unequalness right like if if we're if we're gonna do this you know i i can i can agree to a lot of things but not to like granting pharma the ability to control science full stop like they're the ones that get to do science and nobody else gets gets to play and if they 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 try to we're gonna like butcher them and if they try to fight back we're gonna sort of hide behind our 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 walls and sort of pretend that you know we didn't notice like it it, it, they have to be equal standards if they're not equal standards right here's here's the problem with all this if there's not equal standards 
everything we're talking about, science and fairness and, you know, uh, laws and uh, it's garbage. Like it, it comes down to the law of the powerful, right? Do you have enough money? Then you can play. If you don't have enough money, then you can't play. And and we're not talking about, you know, luxuries, right? Like having people who are dedicated to writing to write your stuff. Like that is amazing. And by the way, if anybody needs a good one, uh, Mary's right there. Uh, Thank <laughs> tinger, you, yes. Tinger. But, you know, I'm not even talking about leveling the field on that level, right? Like, sure, okay, some people are going to be smaller groups. They're going to have more, more, you know, uh, errors in their, in their papers and their numbers are not going to add up and it's going to look a little bit shady or whatever. Okay, but we have to apply equal standards. Like, the, the reason I'm exercised about this trial, by the way, is also that this is kind of new that we've cracked open a new level of complexity now, right? This is not your standard RCT. There are so many moving targets and, and spinning plates that if you don't know exactly what's going on, the ability to be manipulated algorithmically and uh, through all sorts of variables, and we probably don't know all of them, is vast, right? And and for RCTs, we, we, we created uh, constraints to prevent certain kinds of manipulation. This new type of trial, the, the adaptive trials, have a whole host of new uh, potentials for manipulation. And it really doesn't seem like anybody is aware or trying to add the right safeguards to prevent that from happening. Cool. Thank you, Mary. And thanks, everybody. This has been fun, at least for me. The rest of you are still around, so I guess it can't have been too bad. Let's see you around. And I'll, I'll keep tweeting uh, about this stuff, and I'll always try to put the word together in the in the first tweet, so that there's you know if you search like for my name, from Colin at Alexander's space together, you should be able to see like my latest stuff. I know this is not probably the best way to organize, but it's like it's quick, and I don't have a ton of time available. And if you want the the slower release, higher density content, go to do your own research and subscribe there, and I'll I try to like package up a bunch of my findings and write longer posts and and i think one about this kind of the story of the algorithm as i described it now i i need to write that up because it's i do think it explains about i don't know 80 percent of the legitimate issues uh with this trial all come together around that anomaly in the middle well the first few months around the peak of the gamma wave i think that intentionally or not however it was done i'm not i'm not a telepath uh, but um, that anomaly there, uh, once you understand it, everything else flows out uh, from there. It, it, it's very, very clear that something happened there, that it wasn't uh, that it wasn't right. Um, and then there was like a, 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 a clear sort of attempt to obscure. At the very least, it was not described. But there's, there's quite like more happening. So, yeah, I need to write that story up, which will show up on the blog if you're here. And for a reason you're not you know, subscribed, uh, go and do that. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Alex.